Hi, you've got Joe Russo here. And Anthony Russo. This is Steve McFeely. And Chris Marcus. Sorry, I was just finishing a salami sandwich there. Mm. That's classy. Uh, we could, I think we should jump in right away and talk about the 70s thriller uh, inspiration of the movie. As you can see, when Steve uh, and Sam are jogging on the mall uh, at the opening of the film, it's evocative of Marathon Man, mm -hmm. uh, which is one of the inspirations that we use for the film. Another was Three Days of the Condor. That's a big one. And we have joked that you, you, know, you could call this movie Three Days of Captain America because it's got a very similar structure in terms of its time compression. Um, the, the, there's a conspiracy unraveling in a very compressed time frame, and, uh, and, and, uh, and, and Cap is on the outside, very similar to Redford's character in that movie. Once Kevin Feige had said, uh, you know, I think we should lean into a conspiracy movie, because Chris and I have been playing around with, you know, a couple of other ideas. Uh, conspiracy, conspiracy was always in there, and then uh -huh. he said lean into the 70s conspiracy thriller. We went back and watched as many as we could, wow. and Three Days of the Condor sort of taught us how they work, you know, mm -hmm. which is you're on the run for half the movie and you're trying to figure out who's chasing you. And about the middle of the movie, you have a decent idea who's chasing you and you bring the fight to them in some way. Mm -hmm. And once that got cracked, it sort of told more story or allowed us to tell, you know, the correct story. And why do you guys think it works so particular, you know, particularly well with Steve Rogers? It makes, it puts him on the back foot and makes him a, a fugitive in a way, which you need you need to put him in peril in order to make you like Captain America because he's so pure and so symbolic that if he's in charge and everybody likes him, it becomes a little infuriating. But if he's the only person he can trust is himself and he's in the shadows, then he becomes a hero. Yeah, that's what we, we've likened in interviews to Rocky Balboa. He is a character with a very simple arc. He's got a, a moral code. He acts on his principles. And like Rocky, the most interesting uh, version of that character is literally to see him get the crap beat out of him. Right. You know, it's sort of a, you know, you, uh, you, in order to see him win, you want to see him go through trials of, of great, yeah. uh, of, of, you know, great pain and anguish uh, um, uh, because it makes you feel all that much better when he does finally right. win. One of the things we oh, always here's the list. Loved. I would just oh, like yeah. to oh, point the out. Yes, the, the famous, famous list. list. Famous list. This list was, you know, perhaps one of the most debated things in the movie, right? For... There's some controversy whether that says Pisco or Disco. I think it probably says <laughs> Disco. <laughs> I don't know if Steve knows which one. <laughs> no, it says. Right. Um, but this, this, look, this scene was always very appealing because we knew that the movie moved into a new tonal direction and it was a little darker and maybe, um, maybe something a little different from what um, the Marvel movies had been up to that point. So. You know, opening the movie in sort of a, in a more of a light way uh, where we, you know, we, the movie hasn't turned dark yet was really mm -hmm. valuable. It was, like, it was always like a nice transition into what's come before and where we're going to go in this movie. And also it's one of the, f we can only do that in the early scenes of this film because as soon as things get tense, they get very tense. Yeah. And we need to plant Falcon. I mean, if the movie's going to a conspiracy and they're going to need to find an outsider they can trust, you've got to you got to introduce them really early and yeah. give them a reason to be also, genuine and, and trustworthy. Right. It reminds you that they're regular people. If you if you start in costume, you know, beating up bad guys distances you from that the human inside. 
Right, we did play around with that a little bit. I remember of where where we would start, Sam, and the, you know, the, the, I think we had no other choice but to start him at the beginning of the film, mm-hmm. uh, based on how uh, you know he, how his character was going to play out over the course of the movie, his arc was going to play out. Uh, let's talk about Brock Rumlow for a second, um, who was not in the original draft, right? He was always a, there was always a guy here who played this part, right. but the idea that he would be Brock Rumlow, aka ultimately Crossbones, is. Was was a newer uh, right. development, yeah. Right, something that evolved, I think, through conversations where we all said, "Hey, you know, it would be interesting." Is look, we all like density in filmmaking, so I mm-hmm. think uh, uh, you know we pushed for a lot of Easter eggs in the film and a lot of, uh, of narrative threads from from other uh, Marvel films, and and we saw it as an opportunity, I think, to um, you know give a villain a a, a backstory and a, and an origin story in, in the MCU. Mm-hmm. And the other upside of it is you always want to get the best actors you can get even for smaller roles so to get somebody like Frank Grillo, you know, to play that role it's it's nice to have you know, to be offering him something that has more dimensions than just, you know, sort of a supporting player and character a that yeah. has a mythology to them, to him, and perhaps a future. And this yeah. this illustrates his arc. We, you know, this was a uh, we talked a lo- at length with Frank about, you know, giving him admiration towards Cap mm-hmm. uh, at the beginning of the film. He, mm-hmm. he admires him as a soldier uh, and as a badass, um, and uh, uh, you know, and. It, uh, Obviously, as his, uh, his Hydra agenda comes out later in the film, we find out that they're on opposite sides of the spectrum, but there is, a, there, there is an admiration there. Do you guys want to talk about the uh, tremendous ass-kicking that goes on here? Sure. Uh, this, uh, this was always in the script. It was always sort of an early James Bond, um, Lemurian star, you know, take the ship beat. But this became, I think, <laughs> a signature sequence. Look, yeah. one, one, yeah. So we, one of the things we were most excited about in this movie is sort of bringing Cap fully into the modern day. You know, it's like, you know, and one of the charming things about World War II is everybody was plucked off the street of Brooklyn, and then six weeks later you're fighting World War II. So you have a very like unrefined fighting style. Yeah. In, in many ways, and nowadays we're so highly trained, we're so re- well researched, and it's like Cap's been absorbing all that for a couple of years now, and the way his mind works, it's just like we wanted him to be the best soldier of today. And uh, and know all the best fighting techniques, etc. And this is where we wanted to just like give the audience a nice little hello. Well, you want to pull them means. forward into the film. You know, it's, it is a significant tonal shift from the That's, first it's movie. It's an announcement, mm-hmm. yeah. Right. And right. this, yeah, this scene is an announcement that we're making a, a strong tonal shift, and that the character is also graduated into an extremely, uh, um, you know, uh, modern setting, and that he has embraced that modernity. Uh, and it, it was important. Action is a, is a big thing for us. We love action, uh, but also, you know, I grew up collecting comic books, and I like, uh, you know, I was I always thought of Cap as the master of hand-to-hand combat, and and we really wanted to illustrate that. And you know, we had to we had to track that arc, as Ant said, from the from in the MCU from the first film, where right. you know he, he was an untrained uh, soldier. Now now he's the best trained soldier in the world. Mm-hmm. I should point out that this ship is largely real. There, really, there is such a thing as a satellite launch ship. Yes. And the reason they launch satellites from sh- uh, ships is because if you send them up from the equator, they, it requires less gas. They get slung into orbit, um, you know, sort of more efficiently, and they stay up longer. So, um, and I guess, you know, for whatever reason, whatever's going on in the equator, it's better to be on a ship than on land. It was, it was important for us to have a commitment to practical execution in the movie, both from sets and, and from a stunt work standpoint, and the ship allowed us to do an incredible amount of practical work. Mm. 
And a week of nights in San Pedro Harbor. Right, but <laughs> glorious San Pedro. Uh, but, well, you know, once we found the ship, I think we were able to sort of, uh, you know, retrofit the script a little bit yeah, to absolutely. the location. I mean, yeah, the satellites, mm-hmm. the concept of the satellites came from you guys finding this boat. Yeah, and we just saw George St. Pierre there. And, like, part, part of what you guys were mentioning earlier about the uh, the fight sequence here is like, we really wanted to, for Cap to, to have, like, a, a really great early adversary. So to get somebody, a real fighter like him. Right. I remember when we were preparing the movie and I was like looking at um, fighting styles and uh, uh, I was comparing, I was looking at like one of the Bourne movies and watching Matt Damon fight and then I was toggling between that and actual like MMA fighters fighting. And it was like, I just noticed the speed of the arms, like the difference in the speed of the arms was pretty remarkable. I mean, there's so, real fighters are just so fast. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So to have somebody like that go up against uh, cap early on where you're going to get really fast aggression, like shockingly fast aggression was exciting. Well, the other thing that's important about it too, and which we tried to do with a lot of the fighting in the film, was to actually see the actor executing it. So when you mm-hmm. cast a real fighter, right. you can have George St. Pierre do all of his moves. It keeps the audience in the film. It makes right. you believe. And Chris worked his butt off for four months training, doing gymnastics, fight training, stunt training, so that he could stand in uh, uh, in, in, you know, in a scene like this, with, you know, and go toe to toe with George St. Pierre, and, and make it look um, uh, really credible. And I think he did a fantastic job. It also makes the character of Batroc right believable and and serious, maybe for the first time, because he's so comic in the comics. Well, that was the intent was to sort of resurrect uh, a goofy guy and turn him into a real a real adversary. And when you cast a guy who could you know cut you in half with his foot, <laughs> it sort of does a well, that's the great thing about uh, um, you know the tone is that we're you know you're able to process everything through the filter of realism and we joke mm-hmm. when we say yeah you were trying to bring realism to a comic book film, but you know the the truth is is that we tried to use physics as our guide we tried to use science as our guide uh, uh, you know we we, we try to make the uh, characters uh, um, respond to the actual uh, you know, rules of uh, of our world. Uh, as much as we could so that the audience could relate to the characters. These shots you see of the guys on the outside of the ship, you know, a lot lot of work was done uh, on this movie by our second team's director, Spiro Razatos, and he did an amazing job. And, you know, those guys going over the side is one of the wonderful things that he did. This shot uh, uh, took a while for us to figure out. We couldn't figure out. There, there's actually a huge gap between um, uh, the, uh, right. you can see in the distance, that deck there and, and, um, and, and the, uh, you know, where, where Batrock was standing. And so we were trying to figure out forever how we would get Cap from there to Batrock in a way that was exciting. And I think uh, it was either your idea or the storyboard artist, Anth, who, uh, who, who figured out to have, have him appear from behind behind his head yeah. his head uh, and, and shock the audience but again it just it it, it illustrates a more aggressive Steve Rogers mm-hmm. he is a soldier people's lives are at stake you're in trouble here we go George uh, yeah uh, 90 95% of this is is uh, George St. Pierre there, obviously there's a couple of moves that uh, we needed a gymnast for one of them's coming up Backflip. Yeah. And then caps. 
And then 95%, once the helmet comes off, 95% of it is Chris, uh, except obviously for that, that massive kick, aerial kick that he Captain does. Captain America speaks French here. So that was the, th the thinking with Batroc was, how, all right, how do we ground him in this universe? Well, for us, you know, the, 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 the best way to do that was to give him a backstory uh, uh, in, in, in French spec ops, uh, to, you know, to turn him into a mercenary, give, give him a crew of mercenaries that made him feel like a, uh, as much as we could, a, a, a real-world criminal. And his team, yeah. Mm-hmm. Here you talk go. about the relationship between Cap and Natasha in the movie a little bit. Um, it, yeah, it comes up a lot. You know, why Natasha and not every other Avenger? Uh, we wanted to put uh, Steve's clear-eyed view of our world against a person who absolutely inhabits this world. If you say that, you know, today's politics is a little gray, a little morally questionable, you know, ethics get folded for any particular instance... She represents that perfectly. Um, there's a line later where Nick Fury says, I didn't want you to do anything you weren't comfortable with, and Natasha is comfortable with everything. Um, and when you put those two characters with those two worldviews together, um, you're going to get friction, but you're also going to get a chance for each of them to affect the other. Uh, and that's one of the, it's probably a bigger point, but, you know, Steve's arc is not like other people's arcs. He doesn't have these dark nights of the soul. He's, mm -hmm. and it can be, a, you know, it can be a, a failing in the character if you don't do it right. But the idea that he sees, sees things clearly and gets other people to change their point of view is ultimately heroic. It's like Gary Cooper in, in, mm. in older movies. Um, That's just, I mean, he he does it on a gigantic scale. I mean, he right. he reshapes the the country, if not the world, to you know to fit his views when no one agreed with him, mm -hmm. just by standing you know standing still. You know what else I like about the choice of Natasha is that uh, you know it's her. And Fury are so similar that it really makes Cap feel like he's outnumbered, and it, you know it does what you guys were talking about earlier in terms of making Steve vulnerable. Mm -hmm. You know, we would talk a little bit about the politics in the film. I mean, it was you know we all knew we were committing to a political thriller, and all the great political thrillers have very relevant politics to them. I mean, mm -hmm. you look at the ending of Three Days of the Condor, and they basically predict the war on oil for the next twenty or thirty years. Uh, so for us, we, we, I think we all wanted to look inside and find issues that were giving us anxiety as, uh, as, as writers and directors that, uh, that, that we felt would translate to a wide audience because, you know, you, you want that immediacy when the audience goes in to see the film that they, you know, or that connection to the lead character where they're going, oh my God, these are all the things that, that I worry about on a daily basis. Mm -hmm. and, uh, for instance, I'm terrified of helicarriers. <laughs> yes, and, uh, and long elevator rides. <laughs> yes, but we couldn't have predicted Snowden, Edward Snowden, and his right. and, and his uh, document dump. But certainly, you know, Julian Assange and WikiLeaks right. was already in the news, and the, you know, the idea of drones is it was and is still with us. And so that was all percolating in the script and even in the development stage. Because we should also say that you know, Chris and I wrote a draft, uh, and then uh, Joan Anthony came on for the next year, and we just sat in a room and. Uh, perfected it and tried stuff and threw it out and so it was really one of the reasons this thing is tight is because we had a good lead time and we had a lot of uh, smart brains sort of you know poking at it and testing it to make sure the dough was rising um, and then the Snowden thing only happened maybe six weeks into shooting mm -hmm. uh, so we looked fairly prescient um, even if well, you know, it wasn't yeah. granddad loved people but he didn't trust them very much 
Yeah, I know. They're a little bit bigger than a 22. The scene contains one of the more memorable lines in the film by Cap, which is, this isn't freedom, this is fear. Mm -hmm. Probably the uh, the theme of the movie uh, and what he chooses, as you mentioned before, Steve, to stand against, you know, yeah. uh, or Chris, you might have said it, but, you know, that, that that's what he chooses to stand against in the film. Yeah, there were a couple, a couple lines that when we got them really crystallized where he stood. That was one of them. And then coming later was... Uh, Maybe I just like like knowing who I'm fighting, yeah, which which really sort of helped understand where this guy who might seem one dimensional to some people works in the in the machinery of the story. Well, the movie really transitions at that point when he says that second line into a mission movie because yeah. that's the moment where he uh, you know he he understands the uh, the the complexity of the. Um, that's the three days of the Condor right. model, right? I find out who actually I have to go up target. Right. He knows his, who his enemy is, and now he's ready to fight. Uh, and which we used to refer to as the, you know, the third act as being the uh, the Jim Brown's got to get the grenade in the chimney right. uh, sequence from the Dirty Dozen, which is just the you know you you've got a, a very specific mission you have to complete, or else the bad guy will win. Um, the uh, maybe we could talk a little bit, Anth, about the um, the look of the movie, just in terms yeah. of the. Um, I was just going to mention real quickly in this scene, you know, now for a movie where we tried to shoot as much in reality as we could there's nothing real in this that scene except for the uh, thing they're standing the railing but, but it's a real testament to uh to our dp uh trent oplock and to uh peter wenham uh and to out, ilm and dan DeLue. Yeah. these are all the real that's the spirit of st louis that's yeah. the real moonlander we, we had a camera literally three inches from the spirit of st louis on a crane and i kept thinking my god if something happens here that's right right you, you <laughs> dinged american history louis. it will never fly again um now we're in cleveland this we used a, a museum in cleveland to shoot this part of the uh exhibit everyone here is related to a russo <laughs> no no there are three people who are related to me <laughs> that's right somewhere in here are my uh my cousin's wives and uh, child this sequence, I mean, we, 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 we all knew that this sequence had to be in the film because in no other movie could you have a character walking through their life at the Smithsonian. It just it, it happens to work for Cap's Rip Van Winkle story. It happens to work for who he was during World War II. And just practically mm -hmm. it's a big exposition dump for anybody who right. is not, who didn't see the first Cap or didn't quite catch what he was in Avengers. You know, you've got, we've got a couple scenes like this that hopefully disguise information you need to tuck under your arm to go on. It yeah, also puts him, oh, sorry. Go, no, go ahead. It puts him in such a unique situation of, you know, who, he's constantly asking, who am I? His, even his past is not his anymore. It's histories. It's, you know, everyone here can go look at who he was. And this is, that's what I love about this scene, too, is that you really start to, and again, in the spirit of vulnerability of Cap, you really start to feel how alone he is and isolated, and that his that his his life is gone. Well, Everyone yeah, and he the, even though gone. he's a, an incredibly proficient fighter now, he has no identity. He yeah. really doesn't. He's got he's working for Shield. He's got a relationship with Natasha, a relationship with Fury. They're not substantial. 
uh, and he doesn't know who he is. And, uh, the, you know, this first act is all about him trying to find an identity. Just lining up, you know, right. probably way too many scenes asking the same question. But we loved them all and couldn't yeah. figure out a way to, to pull <laughs> one out. You have Haley Atwell's Peggy Carter. Yeah. There was a lot of work done. And I think the most work done in the first act on the script because there was, uh, we, I, I, you know, if I remember correctly, we probably shuffled the order of these scenes maybe 15 sure. times. That's right. true. Uh, between this and the Peggy scene and the Sam scene at the VA, there, you know, the Sam scene at the VA was in, it was out. Uh, it was we deemed it impossible to believe they would go back to Sam without that scene at the VA. That's right. Yeah. Uh, you know, but you know, we're looking for a way to keep momentum in a film like this, but also to give him some great character moments that really illustrated the existential crisis that he's going through early in the movie. And people have been remarking on the on the uh, makeup for this scene. What they don't understand is this is actually, without the makeup, it's when you put on makeup, she looks about 32, but Haley Atwell is, in fact, 95 years old. Yeah. this I mean, this scene, we tried to approach it differently in terms of aging an actor. Uh, we didn't we didn't want to load her face up with a lot of heavy makeup, you know, and sort of, you know, that kind of always gets in the way of performance a little bit. So what we tried in the spirit of Skinny Steve was, Haley performed this scene with almost nothing, very, very little light makeup and um, a wig maybe. And then everything you're seeing is digital. So in the same way we, uh, they create Skinny Steve, we had an older actress perform the scene in the exact manner that Haley performed it. And then we kind of combined them and added to it. And it's really a remarkable job that the special effects team did in terms of making, uh, trying a new way uh, to age somebody and get a performance. Mm. So actually, you know, uh, the way that you would, if you aged, they shrunk her face. They, they, you know, lost, yeah, they took, took muscle away from her, uh, clearly sagged her skin and, and created, you know, deep, deeper set eyes. Uh, there's, a, there's a lot of work that was done digitally to her face, but that, mm. that's like 99% digital right there. We all spent months studying what happens to the human body as it ages, and it's... Uh, Pretty remarkable. <laughs> well, and there was some debate whether to have this moment of memory loss. Right. But yeah. it, it it just works so well in terms of everything's being taken from Steve. Even his one friend, you know, is ceasing to exist before his eyes. Yeah. Well, that's the, that, I mean, that, look, that's the, for us, that was the most interesting component of him as a character is the Rip Van Winkle component that... You know, when, when do you get to see a character who has lost everything, right. you, know, you know, and uh, a real opportunity to, to play into the tragedy and the pathos of that, mm -hmm. uh, that, uh, you know, everything in his life has been stripped away from him. And anything you take out of the first act, because you know, it, it would just, it makes it more like some other movie, right? right? You have all these opportunities, and if you just remove them for time or pacing, then, you know, you're, you're falling into a... Uh, into a, a trap. And that's the thing, you know, we wanted to do a more grounded, sort of textured, you know, there, a lot, you could look at that Rip Van Winkle idea and play into the fantasy aspect of it. And, oh, isn't it fun to go to the future and experience something you would have never feared? But it's, you, you equally have to appreciate the, 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 the tragedy of the it cost, and the loss yeah. of it and the cost mm -hmm. of it. I mean, and, and at the end of the day, you know, like, like, uh, uh, you know, all great superheroes have have something very tragic in their experience, and this is part of Steve's tragedy. Here's Redford. Obviously, we're going to talk about him in a second, but I want to talk about Sam's performance, Sam Jackson's performance, because I think it's critical to the uh, to the uh, tone of the movie. 
uh, and the stakes of the film. It's actually the first time that you you see in any of these films that you actually see Fury vulnerable. Yeah, that was right? there was a mandate to give him one a big action sequence, but also to you know to to give him a more well-rounded um, uh, arc in the movie. And so if Shield's going to come down, he's the one that's going to that's going to bear the brunt of that. And you got to you know open his eye to a, an extent. Yeah, and if you want to fear for the characters in the film. The best way to do it is to show the audience that the guy who's always in control is yes. not in control anymore. Yeah. The first time I read somebody this, smarter is 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 pulling the strings than Nick Fury. I remember the first time I read the script. That was one of the things I was most excited by was the fact that Nick Fury was vulnerable. Was on his back foot. Yeah, yeah, it was great. And there's a great performance by Sam in the scene to play vulnerable. He never plays this character this right. way on screen, and it's because we were lucky enough to, to land Robert Redford that we had a, a, a screen legend opposite him. Yes, that, that would be completely different, right? That would allow him exactly right, allow right. him to play this scene this way to be we're deferential. All, yeah. right. we're all vulnerable in front of Robert Redford. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> Even though he does everything he could possibly do to to make you feel comfortable, it's <laughs> very lovely. And then what's you know look the. We liken Bob, uh, casting Bob in this movie to Henry Fonda in Once Upon a Time in the West. It's mm -hmm. that shocking yeah. uh, uh, villain turn by uh, an incredibly wholesome and all-American legend. Yeah. Uh, and I think what's so effective about his performance in the film is that he, the casualness which with he you know that he plays the character with. Uh, right. uh, there's a um, it's it's always important I think when you're you know especially for us this is is film watchers that the movie be as layered as possible and to have a villain that actually earnestly believes that what he's doing is the right thing makes mm -hmm. him a more interesting right. villain yeah. than a villain who knows he's doing wrong well it's clear he is reasoned and thought about this idea so yeah. that there's no histrionics to it no, this he's, is, not he's very confident and calm mm -hmm. about the uh, about the agenda now this what's happening here is we always wanted to approach sam through the prism of of being a, a fellow veteran, someone who could speak to Steve on that level as opposed to, you know, in awe of him because he's Captain America. And also it brought up the idea that, you know, Steve, in addition to everything else he's gone through, spent four years in World War II, and that's very traumatic stuff. And he has never had a chance to, to decompress about any of it. Well, one of my favorite lines from him is uh, when he says, I'm more of a soldier than a spy. Mm -hmm. I just love that so much because it speaks to his relationship with Cap and well, their nature. You like guys did a great it. job with this scene because a very, uh, this is probably the hardest scene in the movie because it, it leads to the biggest buy in the film, which is that, well, maybe there's a couple other big buys, but <laughs> right. the Cap is going to go back to a guy he met jogging right. on the mall yeah. when, when his life is in danger because he, he's the only guy he can trust. So it was important. That these these two connect on a very deep level, an emotional level in this scene. Mm -hmm. That's also a credit to Mackie. Uh, who, I mean, you know, yeah. I trust yeah. Mackie. You would go to Anthony Mackie. <laughs> I would go to Mackie. Yeah. Some sure. people you wouldn't go to. Well, that, let's talk about Mackie for a second. It's a reason that it, we we cast him as one that you know I've never I've never not seen a truthful moment from him on screen. And two, uh, he has this incredible ability to combine charm and integrity, which is a difficult thing to do. Is to be mm. funny. And both convey integrity at the same time. Yeah, he's not shallow. No. You know, yeah. His gr great depth as an actor, uh, which allows Steve to feel the depth, the audience to feel the depth, which makes you believe that Steve would trust this guy, even though their relationship is so uh, new. So this is a signature moment. This is uh, from day one. There was always a car chase, but I got to say, 
it wasn't this car chase. <laughs> <laughs> this uh, 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 Joe and Anth came on board and said, "Okay, <laughs> here's how it's gonna go," and it just got layered and uh, more involved as it as it went on. We fetishize car chases. Oh, so it's, yeah, it's ridiculous. You know. It was the thing. If you're gonna attempt a car chase, you want to attempt a great car chase. You don't want to do just any car chase. And for me, as a film viewer, I get bored with car chases. I, you know, I can only watch. You know, fast-moving cameras whipping in and out of cars for so long. So we wanted to create a, a story or a narrative that played out over the course of, of many minutes. Because again, as an homage to 70s thrillers, what those films did that was that we loved as uh, as, as, as uh, film lovers was, uh, you know, these really extended action sequences that really either highlighted the thematics of the film or highlighted something about the character. Right. And again, this is this is Nick Fury in danger. It tells the audience immediately that, that somebody somebody really powerful right. and really smart right. is behind what's yeah. going on in this film because this guy is never behind the eight ball. Mm -hmm. And here he is barely clinging to his life. Yeah. I mean, at some points we'd go, are you sure this seems like over the top? And, and Joe would say, uh, it should be really hard to kill Nick Fury. Yeah. This is the, uh, in this, this idea, the whole sequence evolved over many months. And sitting in the room and all of us talking together, storyboard artists coming on board and giving great ideas. A very collaborative process to come up with this. Window integrity, 1%. Now! Propulsion systems now online. Another sequence where we owe a huge debt to our uh, second unit director, Spiro. He carried a lot of weight in this sequence. This was coming up here. This was, again, trying to find a way to reinvent a car chase sequence. Once they get into the slow traffic chase, that was based on a video that we actually brought in. That's right, out of Brazil. Out of, right. It was a car chase in Brazil. I think it was an escaped prisoner who stole a car and got stuck in traffic with the cops chasing him. The cops got out of their car and started to chase on foot as he was ramming through traffic. And I thought, you know, again, just using a real-world inspiration, um, you know, so that the, the car chase had levels to it, you start with a stationary uh, a sequence where, you know, Nick Fury is stuck in his car and will he escape or won't he escape? We'll talk about that in a minute, but we owe great debt to De Palma for that sequence. Then getting into this, this, was, this is all based on this, uh, this car chase we found that we actually used in our initial pitch when we were trying to win the job for the movie. Uh, talking about what we could do with um, with the sequence in the film. Uh, talk about De Palma for a second. The other thing I think we referred to, and it, 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 there's two sequences in the movie that really owe a great debt to him. As we were talking about making a thriller, we went and looked at obviously the the uh, you know the masters of tension, and um, and and we, you know nobody had really done a, a, a great De Palma-esque sequence in a while. Since you know, since probably the uh, the White Vault Room and Mission Impossible, yeah. you know, and and so we said, you know, can we can we find a couple sequences in this film 
where we put our very likable characters in impossible situations uh, and protract it and, and really keep the audience on edge as to how they're going to escape the sequence. Fury in his car was one of them, uh, and Cap in the elevator is another one of them. Also, the addition, I think, of Winter Soldier in this sequence was a late addition. That's Lou, yeah, I was. think. Right. Lou D'Esposito was, uh, uh, said, you just got to bring him in sooner. And, yeah. and we were worried that uh, because he doesn't get Fury at this moment, yeah, that it weak. would weaken him, but we were wrong. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, it, was, it ended up being a wonderful twist at the end of the car chase, but I remember resisting it, yeah. resisting it, because, yeah. you know, wanting to save the introduction of Winter Soldier for something more mysterious. And, yeah. Yeah. But it is truly frightening. Yeah. That's just a GoPro sitting in the car somewhere? That was yeah. a GoPro, yeah, that was attached to the top of the car. I love that. Then uh, this is an interesting uh, twist here. You know, we're, again, trying to make, like, a shield film with Cap. Uh, a shield as a backdrop to the film and trying to come up with shield technology that would be interesting throughout the movie. And this, this device that he pulls out is one of them. It's a weird balance to strike because you want, of course, you, you know, part of the fun is sort of being surprised by new technology that you didn't know about it. But at the same time, you don't want to, it to become convenient or common. So it's a very difficult line to walk. We're always sort of second-guessing ourselves whether or not we had crossed the line. Right. Mm. Well, part of it is writing yourself into a corner. You know? right. So we, <laughs> right. we had written ourselves exactly. into a corner. How do you get out of it? They got out his lightsaber <laughs> and cut That's a hole right. in the ground. And, and it seems like people buy it. Turn of Mace Windu. <laughs> so now this is one of our, you know, uh, in Washington, D.C. shots. We're in DuPont Circle here where Cap has chosen to live. We have Emily Van Camp playing yeah. the mysterious Agent 13. A lot of conversation about, you know, how to use this character in the film. Because he had such a strong relationship with Natasha, there wasn't a lot of room. Mm -hmm. uh, so, again, this became more of an origin for the character. Um, you know, and this is, uh, this is a, a great idea you guys had. I think it was in the original draft that she was the... Uh, she was a... Uh, um, oh, the, she was the uh, minder? Yes. The, uh, yeah. A secret minder? I think there was always a minder, and we went through various versions. Oh, that's of right. The there's an old lady. There's there maybe right. always a great reveal. It evolved into her at some mm -hmm. point. There was a minder that, an under undercover minder. Right. Right. And then it turned into her, which mm -hmm. we thought would be a really interesting twist for, for the character. Also, like, as small as it is, it, it's a great window into, into Steve Rogers, where he, you know, he does not know how to ask a girl out. I that, remember that coffee moment is, is really quite sweet. It's awesome. A, jur a journalist we were talking to pointed that out. He said it was just so, so he loved the idea that Cap could clear that elevator but not, uh, have trouble asking a girl out. Yeah. So it's just a great <laughs> sort of character paradox. Because that's the thing. I mean, the thing we, we hold with us throughout all these movies is that he is always the 90-pound guy. Right. That, that guy is still in there and has not had any time to improve his life skills I think on the USO tour he did. Uh, you know. <laughs> he was in show business. Fumbling, fumbling. He's not good at it. Now this, this scene helps escalate the tension clearly in the movie because, again, we've got Nick Fury on his heels. Uh, and what I really like about this scene, and Sam's performance especially, is that there is a... Uh, um, he, he, he knows that he's in trouble. He knows that he's most likely about to be assassinated. Uh, clearly, he's, he sets some things up on the side, he, he is predicting that he's been outsmarted. 
which you know, so he, in in a way he's throwing in the towel, mm-hmm. uh, but he's also uh, uh, you know trying to, to to line up a an ally, a, the most a, important an ally. escape hatch for himself, you know. Uh, but uh, it it clearly all depends on whether that bullet goes through his heart or not. Well, it's again, it's in a, so it's, a it, it's a gamble. Nick on his Fury's part. in a moment where he realizes he can't trust anybody, and obviously, Cap's the guy. The you go only to. guy he can trust is the guy he just argued with yeah. about yeah. you know life, about their life views. Yeah. Well, it's a great a great irony in the movie, right? Is that you know, Cap gets stuck with Nick yes. Fury's mission? It's right. the last thing he's that he tired of wanted. being Jer- Fury's janitor, and that's all he is for the whole movie. And again, this is one of the things I most loved about the script when I read it the first time is just the way. You guys trap Cap. You use Nick Fury to trap him mm. and put him in the most a place he does not want to be, which I think is really wonderful character conflict. There's a lot of conversation about whether we would see uh, Winter Soldier on the opposite roof, whether we would shoot something from his point of view or not. Right. We felt like it was more intimidating and scary to not reveal anything about him mm-hmm. uh, until the moment when he catches uh, Cap's shield, which obviously is a, is a game changer for Cap. Nobody, nobody's supposed to be able to do that. Now, why is um, Nick Fury's code name Foxtrot? Because F stands for Foxtrot stands for. Also, it's, his favorite, it's his favorite ballroom dance. There's we, a lot you I don't think know we about. We tried him. six or seven, and they all just slowed the movie down. I've always loved the Foxtrot. Remember, we had a long conversation with Kevin about this scene because he said he, he goes he did, he did not want Captain America to turn into the Hulk, and we said, mm. well, no. Listen, the scene is to is about illustrating his desire to catch this guy. Uh, this this shows his dogged determination to stop uh, uh, Fury because now uh, uh, to stop Winter Soldier because now. He feels responsible in some way for for Fury's death. You know, it's great. The great thing about Steve is also his his level of guilt. As as much as he was pissed at Fury, he now is uh, now he's got a, a burden to bear for the mm-hmm. rest of the film. There was actually a beat here that we cut. Maybe it's in the deleted scenes. I don't remember. It was where she. Where a, a, a cop tries to stop her, she walks into the hospital and she breaks his arm and takes him down. And you know, what was the logic so. of cutting it? It was just tonally off. Yeah, yeah. yeah it was just slowing the sequence down. Also, it's it, like it was this... just show her relationship to Fury, how intense it was. That you know, some unsuspecting cop tries to be a right. but you get on her a, face a here, and she, she, she well, doesn't you, waste any time. I mean, if you watch him. this entire sequence here with them at the window, I mean, she there's only one shot where she's not the actor in focus mm-hmm. all the shots oh, interesting in though um i mean you know yeah the, she has a special unique relationship with fury and that was what we were tracking here and the gravity of it ended up being more interesting than this sort of whatever happened is outside. that something you do from the beginning or is that something only in post with jeff that you go oh let's pick all the shots where she's in focus and, and make it about her it's a little bit of both like on set you know that was definitely like the emphasis we were thinking about but at the same time you protect yourself because you don't want to be stuck you know we we like to shoot options that's always our thing we like we, you know because we, we always said you can only make the movie out of what you bring into the editing room so yep. we try to bring a lot of different stuff into the editing room but it ended up going that way. Jeff Ford, our editor, just put the scene together together that way, and it worked really well. Hmm. Rather extraordinary performance from the doctor here. Yes, of course. I believe that's, a, that's an actual surgeon, I think. A gentleman <laughs> named Gozi Agbo, <laughs> uh, who we uh, we found a, wandering what? the lot that no, day. No, no, it was yeah. a it was a worldwide search. Yeah. <laughs> um, it's a great scene for Scarlett because you know her performance translates to a reflection. 
Uh, not an easy thing to do. Uh, and here the uh, the screws turn on Steve. And we'd already always carved out this space to sort of really sell the Fury death, and it should feel like an emotional moment for uh, Natasha particularly, but you really want to sell to the audience, even though it's a lie, uh, that Fury's dead. And, you know, all too many movies, you know, pull a fake death, and we knew we were going to have to do it, but we wanted to really sell it. Uh, so her touching his head is is hopefully supposed to really tell you that this guy's not coming back and, and they're going to have to go yeah. on without him. And you have to give it story space because mm -hmm. we've all seen thousands and thousands and thousands of hours of, of produced films and television, and we have an innate sense of story structure. Uh, so you have to ascribe it the right story space so that the audience feels fooled in their own brain, in their own psyche. And you're staring at Nick Fury dead on the table going, well, he's clearly not breathing. This can't be fake. Uh, and she's having an incredible emotional reaction to this. Oh, my God, they really did kill Nick Fury. Mm -hmm. yeah, Nick Fury is actually leaving the Marvel Cinematic Universe. You, yep. you know, you have, that's a big moment. This, uh, this is great because this is the guy who idolized him is now being short with him. So, the, the, again, the screws are turning on Cap here, and it's almost, it's almost sad because he's such an earnest character mm -hmm. to see him caught in such a modern conspiracy where even Nick Fury was... Uh, was you know, outthought. Well, and, and her line there, you're a terrible liar, sort of sums up it's true. his situation. You know, right. everybody in this movie is a liar except him. It's so awesome. That moment is like an homage to Friedkin in uh, The French Connection, that sound over Cap pushing in on him as he's looking at the vending machine. Uh, early in The French Connection, Gene Hackman is in a bar looking at some uh, ne'er-do-wells and the camera slowly pushes in on his face, and there's this non-diegetic sound that Freakin' brings up to illustrate that, that you know, Hackman is on to something, that he's figuring wheels something turning, out. The yeah. wheels are turning. Um, and, uh, you know, it's a technique that we borrowed uh, uh, to show that Cap was, go was going through a, a, a thought process there of, of uh, you know, what am I going to do with this hot potato? So it's such a great moment there where you have, like, Chris Evans and... Uh, and uh, Robert Redford, it's all, you know, because, you know, people have remarked, you know, in, in an earlier age, Robert Redford could have played Captain America. It's just sort of like, it, it's really nice how they're two peas in a pod. And I, feel, I love this scene because while there is a ton of exposition in this scene and it's a really long scene, there's just a wonderful game of chess going on between these two characters in this scene. That I love, it was in the script and also, uh, you know, the way they play it is really... Fantastic. Well, it's great as you get to see Cap, who you wouldn't think would be equipped to play this kind of game, is actually equipped to play it a little bit. Uh, and the whole the whole thing builds towards a very critical moment for him as a character where he is forced to lie probably for the first time in his life Right at the end of the scene. Who does he trust? Does he trust Fury? Does uh, he technically does he, does he lie? Did we get away with him not technically lying? No, he lies. Does he technically lie? Well, he, he says, says he told me not to trust anybody. That's true. And then he says... Uh, I'm sorry that's all he said. He didn't... Yeah, I'm sorry, that was where his last words... Right. Those were his right. last words. Which is also true. Right. <laughs> he's, he's not disclosing... <laughs> he is ...the most important withholding. piece of information. He's withholding yes. information. That's as far yeah. as Cap can go. You didn't right. ask if he gave right. me anything. You just asked if he said anything. <laughs> uh, uh, another another incredible oh my God, Look at those guys. Wow. Look at those interrogating... George wow. uh, yeah, uh, St. Pierre. Remarkable. They worked... In, when we shot that scene and uh, Chris and Steve sort of were, were interrogating... Uh, George St. Pierre. We By got the way, that is Chris and Steve for anybody who didn't know. Yeah. yeah. We got to the end of the scene, and they were really laying on him to give up all the information, and we said, cut. And George St. Pierre said, I was just about to crack. 
It's a, it's a very nice man. <laughs> he met me in two. <laughs> this was probably the, the trickiest plot in the movie, right? This uh, this whole backstory with, mm-hmm. uh, uh, what's his name? Jacob uh, Veach. Uh, yeah, Veech and undoubtedly, and you know, I think some people may walk away not knowing, you know, every bit of this, right. having it under their belt. But I think they know that, that there's some, that even Fury was... was I don't know if he was dirty, but he was certainly duplicitous. And so Redford uses that against him. Um, I think this scene probably plays even better the second time around because now that you know for sure... He can track the information Yeah, what he's doing, yeah. This is great. This scene was really a product of, again, the time that we spent in the room. We have, uh, uh, looking at the glass here, uh, at Nate Moore, uh, one of the producers on the project. Uh, And it was was, uh, the uh, five of us who sat in a room for months... Um, really trying to crack the code of this plot, which was so you know so complex, and everybody kept adding in ideas and layering. Well, what if it was Fury who hired the pirates, and well, what would that do? And then you have to go backwards in the story to pull it forward, and you know it was very it was it was, it was a, a solid year of work, which is very rare for a movie of this size. You, you usually don't get that much time, and I think um, uh, that was an incredible asset to us to have that much time in a room together. And it was crazy fun on top of it all. Well, what also helps as a director is to be able to get into the writer's brain, to be able to understand what you guys are thinking right. in each scene, what, uh, you know, because there is a lot of complexity uh, in the characterizations in this, and to, to know what you guys are thinking and what the motivations were and what you think are motivating the character and what you think the themes are, um, you know, really makes it uh, uh, um, uh, much more... Um, a clear uh, and you know uh, lucid process, but it's also challenging for us. I mean, I should say like we, it's important that people poke at decisions we've made. You know, particularly in that first draft, and you know whether uh, you know there's a lot of you know you know B minus scenes where you go, all right, that's got we got to make that better. We got to make that clearer. Mm-hmm. Um, and so that's why you know eight months in, in in a room just sort of you know beating the script up. Is uh, is invaluable. Yeah. You know? Well, there's also a lot of stuff you do unconsciously or subconsciously that helps. You know, when like a lot of the times when you guys would come in and say, "This is how I think this scene is working," it would be It'd be news oh, to us. <laughs> you're right. That is how it's working. Yes, we we planned that along, right. but. Just happy accident. This is one something of the, that evolved over the process. Yeah, so let, me, let me a little thing that yeah. the, we love that, that moment where capitalized to his superior, and then he walks out, and we get our we get this great landscape of DC with the Watergate building. Watergate mm-hmm. building is like a nice little. Uh, so this uh, uh, in the original drafts was in essence uh, a, a chase, and that's sort of a default thing, as that Chris and I will say, right? And there's a chase through the Triskelion, and he jumps out the window, um, and for a number of reasons, uh, uh, most of which is sort of. Uh, I'll just, I guess I'll let you guys talk about it, but this turned into, a, again, a absolute signature piece of the movie. Um, can you tell, can you talk about why it went to the elevator sequence as opposed to yet another chase? Well, there's a couple of reasons. One was, you know, the, uh, um, in, the in, in the spirit of a thriller, right? We're looking for the, uh, the, those moments of tension to play out. Uh, and we felt, look, this is, this is a, critical moment in the Marvel Cinematic Universe, this is when S.H.I.E.L.D. turns bad. In one scene, you realize that something is going on on a much deeper level than anybody is aware of, and that the, clearly, that the, uh, that the enemy is within. And I think this was able to uh, ref- reflect that tension, the audience's sense of tension, 
and and you know movies you know eight movies of build up to to this elevator sequence and i think that's why the it's it's such an effective sequence because you're in the same place cap is is, is that you know you have all this historical information that's that's telling you that this uh that that shield is good and and in about 5 minutes you're discovering that that they're rotten to the core um and uh, again it was also uh, a, we felt like a great way to illustrate Cap's abilities yeah. uh, was to trap him in an elevator. We used to say, what would happen if you put a gorilla in an elevator with 10 highly trained guys? What would happen? Well, this is what happens. The other nice thing about it is Cap, again, Cap is in, in such a lost place when he walks in that elevator in terms of, you know, wondering if he's done the right thing, wondering what's going on around him. So the fact that, like, uh, you know, he slowly becomes aware of, uh, of something developing around him, it's not, it's, it, that distraction is a nice element. This was actually the first scene shot in the movie with the elevator This sequence. was four days. And yeah. I remember on going to day three thinking, really, what are we doing four <laughs> days in this elevator? Good God. More punching. Yeah. And I should also point out, it's you know it goes back to the Fury car chase. Like It should take a lot to bring down Captain America. It should take mm -hmm. a lot to bring down Nick Fury. And in both cases, it does and it doesn't. <laughs> Look at they didn't come ill prepared. They they've no. got uh, they got a lot of weaponry, and shield gadgets to try and bring him down, and some pretty big guys. Uh, uh, he's just Cap. This is another sequence again where you, you put him in an impossible situation. He's stuck in an elevator, right. and, uh, with a bunch of armed, uh, uh, you know, um, uh, operatives coming at him. How's he going to get out? And this was something I think that was in the original script. That we, he made a he made a leap from. He was yeah. always going to go through. Right. Yeah, this moment basically was always there. Um. Again, this is a great moment because for a guy who is as strong as Cap is, and kind of in comparison to normal people, you know, you need to see him get hurt sometimes. Yeah. You just yeah. love him getting hurt. And people don't understand the mythology. Just to point this out. The shield absorbs vibration. The whole point of this fall is that the shield does what we want it to do when we want it to do it. <laughs> that he could he could take a fall like that because the shield would absorb the brunt of the fall. He still has the momentum of a guy traveling at a certain speed from a certain height. Uh, this was a this was a more protracted. Like, this sequence went on longer. He actually got into DC. There was a bit of a motorcycle chase. Molly, this used to go into the park. But we had so much action in the film. This was an area we figured we would compress. Uh, but everybody loves this sequence of him taking on uh, again, like Joe a was Quinjet. saying. Quinjet. I'm trying to remember where this came from. We used to call from. this like the, uh, if the elevator was a gorilla in a cage, this was Cap fights a dragon. That's how we sort of <laughs> always described this. It really shows his ability. Again, just as comic book fans, you know, you have emotional attachment to these characters from when you were a kid. You want this kind of expression for those characters. You want this kind of heroism. You want to see this kind of ability out of them. And so this is our this is our expression of who you know who who Cap was in our ten year old brains. And Reagan, all security cameras in the city go through this monitor right here. Scan all open sources, phones, computers, PDAs, whatever. If someone tweets about this guy, I want to know about it. With all due respect, if S.H.I.E.L.D. is conducting a manhunt for Captain America, we deserve to know why. Because he lied to us. Captain Rogers has information regarding the... I think that crisis. speech was written, that Sitwell speech was written on the morning of. Right. Right? Yeah, no, we, uh, you had already blocked it out and said, we need 
uh, we need to fill something like a minute here. And so we banged out. Uh, just to give them, just to understand thing. how Shield was going to close the net around Cap. We wanted to give them a very precise sort of, I think we even refer to it as a mammoth kind of, a mammoth-esque kind of That's right. That's monologue right. of, you know, um, um, we're going to bring all hell bear to bear on this guy and uh, he's not going to escape. Bubblegum snap. Mm-hmm. Very, says a lot, that bubblegum snap. <laughs> Gets a big laugh. And look, this is where you see, you know, how wonderful Chris and Scarlett are together. What's great about this, and I think about it every time I watch it uh, with an audience uh, who's seeing it for the first time, is actually how violent he is with her here. Yeah, he throws her against the wall. Yeah, absolutely. Oh, uh, I think, yeah, it was always going to be a little bit of a tussle. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I think we even toned it down a little bit. Well, that's it. Again, it's like a guy who's he's dealing with liars. He's in over his head, and you just see Cap fraying a little bit. Yeah. You see him going in places where over. he wouldn't normally go. Well, it also... He's treating her like an equal, yep. both physically and 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 mentally. So, you know, she's an Avenger. She's on the team. She can take this kind of treatment when needed. An equal that he can crush. Can he? Backstory of the Winter Soldier here. I think there's something that came out maybe in the in the in the room was that she had a that we wanted to give her. History. Was that in the original draft that she wanted to give him a, that, uh, that she had a history with him? I know it's from the books clearly. Mm. You know, in the, in the books, they had a much more intimate much history. Much more of a history, we, right. Uh, portraying the films. But this sort of ghost story spec ops character, you know, this the boogeyman of, uh, of, of the Winter Soldier. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's, it's great coming from Scarlet, such a great actress that it really lends a lot of credence and weight to his backstory. Yeah, it was always, I'm looking at the script yeah. now, it was always in the draft. Something like it. This was in and out of the movie, this scene, but we felt it was really important for two reasons. One was, you know, look, it, it's impossible to hide who a villain is in a film when, <laughs> when, you know, you when you're casting. It's, like, it's usually the biggest actor in the movie who's not uh, uh, playing a superhero. Well, we were hoping for a moment, right? right? Didn't we convince ourselves that people might think that Redford's going to take over for Yeah, that's, what, that's the story we told ourselves. <laughs> we bought it. Yeah. <laughs> But uh, so one reason just to see that this character, just to keep playing out the concept that that he's an innocent, right? That maybe it's the World Security Council who's actually behind everything. Uh, uh, But if you look at his face here, it's a great performance from Bob. Does that say I'm stuck or does that say I just got exactly what I wanted? <laughs> you know, and uh, and the other reason was we we just needed to keep bumping the World Security Council. When they showed up at the end, you actually knew who they were. Exactly. So again, the fun of this set piece is Cap now has to sort of, the best move Cap can make here is to uh, go along with uh, Widow's Rules and not punch his way out of this mall, but stealth his way out. Well, this is really Widow's scene, and people have asked, you know, why do they go to a mall? Why wouldn't they? Well, look, they've got nowhere else to go. You know, the government is watching everything that they own. Well, they know that they're going to be, as soon as they plug in, they're going to be tracked. And, you know, this was just their choice of the best place they can escape from successfully. Mm -hmm. Widow's choice, really. Yeah, Widow's choice. Put yourself in a public space with a lot of people so you can disappear into into the crowd. Uh, you know, it's a, it's a large space. It gives them options when they're escaping. Um, you know, we hope that that would come through in the subtext uh, as she sort of directs Steve out of uh, the mall without incident. Which probably makes Steve nervous because that's the last place he'd pick. He would pick a, <laughs> right. you know, you a clear ground where no civilians right. would be injured. And here's D.C. Pearson. So... And this is pretty much all I lived at this point. Yeah. yeah. He's a wonderful improv actor that we've... Uh, uh, worked with many times, love him. 
cohort of uh, Donald Glover's from Community. They're actually in a comedy troupe together at NYU. Derek Comedy. Derek Comedy did uh, a lot of great uh, online uh, videos, uh, YouTube videos. Here we go. Strike's coming. This was one of the first scenes we shot, right? Yes, well, it's her first day, I think. Yeah, it was her first day, and uh, um, part of it is shot in Cleveland, and part of it is shot in Los Angeles. So the Apple Store is actually in Los Angeles, and the mall is in Cleveland, which is why when you see they exit there, that we actually don't shoot into the store. It's a little uh, cheat right. we did. That's great. Chris totally sells that beat with that look on his face, and I think that, you know, we're hoping that that's where the audience will understand the subtext that... You know, for her, this is not, this was never about punching your way out. This was, we're, we're going to sneak right out under under their noses because they're looking for Cap. They're not looking, they're not for, looking Cap for a couple. Yeah. And Widow at this point. They don't know that Widow's involved yet. So, this mall is filled with tons of our cousins who really, really hit it off in Italian American fashion with Frank Grillo. I loved hanging out together. Talk about the kiss for a second. I mean, that was something that got pitched out in the room. We're all like, can we do it? Can we sure, not do yeah. it? It's such an old trope. It, yeah, that's true. Well, it's, you know, it's the debate of, you know, are they actually going to, is there going to be romance between them for real in the movie? And I think eventually we decided, you know, there, A, there's no time, and it sort of sells both characters short that, that the only reason you'd have the Black Widow is so that it, there can be sexual tension. But kiss is always fun. Plus, it leads to this conversation, which really cracks Steve open. Wonderful scene in the movie. Chris and Scarlett, you really see their chemistry here. And you also benefit, you know, this scene greatly benefited by their working history together, the fact that they know one another so well. Uh, I remember reading this scene before we shot it in their trailer with them. And making over adjustments and over. with them. No, right? I think yeah. they tweaked it yeah. for the practice part. They wanted to right. put the practice line in. So. But a lot of the bantering back and forth and the, you know, sort of the playing off of each other came from. Uh, you know, the work in there, right. uh, and I think it was Scarlett's trailer, we're all sitting around reading the scene, it's just like workshopping the scene a little bit. Uh, but it's great, because it gives it a nice energy and a spark. Yeah. And it's, you know, what's interesting you know, it's for, about this scene is the first time since the Avengers, which is this, you know, cultural phenomenon, where you get to see these, you know, two of the characters from that group behaving like, you know, like friends, or, or you know, at least behaving in, in an intimate fashion and a, having a conversation in a way that you know, they're, they're talking about things other than saving the world. Right. What a pivotal moment in the movie, narratively and on a character level, for him to be looking for a friend and for her to tell him no. Right. It's mm. a great beat. Yeah, we, we, we play with, you know, there's a few callback lines in the whole movie, you know, that, and that's one of them. You might yeah. be in the wrong business. Yeah. Um, so we had always, uh, you know, we're heading towards the midpoint of the movie where, uh, as we said in... in uh, in conspiracy movies, you, you figure out who's after you and, and what the truth is, and you can turn around and go forward. And and we um, I, we hit upon fairly early on the idea that the secret place they went to find the answers was where Steve was, in essence, born, which was Camp Camp Lehigh. Um, uh, so yeah, where it all began. Yeah, and it's a kind of a major thing in the Marvel universe that that you know Kevin Feige and Nate Moore were were particularly were. were Generous in letting us make those calls, you know, that would sort of dictate what happens in the universe. So, and this is another this scene actually with Steve seeing himself in the past. It was a conversation, very talked about sequence where you know 
I think we all knew we wanted to intimate some sort of, uh, uh, you know, um, memory from him. But, you know, a Anth and I uh, break out in a rash anytime you talk about using footage from another film. Mm -hmm. right. Plus, it seems like a cop-out. So we were trying to find a new way to express, uh, um, again, this identity crisis he was going through and also to remind the audience of what the location actually was for right. people, again, who hadn't oh, seen yeah. the first movie. Oh, yeah. You say Camp Lehigh, most people are going right. to know. What does that right. mean? Absolutely. So we, you know, we, we, we tried to externalize it and, you know, you use these ghosts running through the location so that you, you got context for it. But also that moment where he stares at himself is a very sad moment. You know, it's the, uh, again, it's, it's what have I lost and, and, and what have I gained? Um, we were thinking about Kubrick a lot in this sequence in the sense of sort of this being a, sort of a psychological movement in the Cap's memory and mm -hmm. the, uh, you know, the journey down into uh, Zola's chamber is really a, a journey down into his psyche. You know, this is Cap going back and going deep into his own psyche. Uh, and you know, kept telling Henry Jackman that about the music, that the music should have this otherworldly quality to it, that, uh, you know, that the, uh, an extra layer of, of creepiness to it, um, you know, but a psychological layer. And this is why we wanted Cap sort of leading the charge in the scene. Uh, um, you know, he's the one who finds the elevator. He's pushing them forward towards a, uh, towards a confrontation with, with his past. Probably the most controversial scene in the movie, without a doubt. Oh, yeah. Without a doubt. From the get-go, this scene was always, among the entire creative team that was involved in the movie, this scene was always questioned the most, tested the most, challenged the most. Mm. From our end, you know, the idea was, you know, if you're going to find out that the entire history of S.H.I.E.L.D. is compromised and that Hydra has been growing, you know, from the very beginning, if how else are you going to demonstrate that you could find a secret file you could find a secret computer tape you could but someone's gonna have to lay this out for you and it's not a small bite it's kind of a big bite right. um, and we knew that uh, Arnim Zola was a character who hypothetically could come back and speak to you in real time even right. if it was in this and in this computer. form is actually much truer to his traditional comic portrayal than than he was in the first movie I mean, traditionally, he is a man on a screen in a, in, a, in a robot body. So, in a way, we're just paying off the, you know, the plant from the first movie. But it's also, you do this and it allows you, you know, he can show you a montage so that the movie doesn't have to, you know, break, break its realism to... Well, that said, though, it is the most comic booky part of the movie, you know, the, because... Once the decision was to try to make this as grounded as possible, and you guys can speak to this better, you know, how do you make room for this part where a guy is a, a ghost in a machine? Well, it's, you know, here's the thing. It's a good question because you can only go so far in grounding it. At the end of the day, it's a fantasy film. At the end of the day, the entire narrative begins when Steve Rogers is turned from a 90-pound weakling into a super mm -hmm. soldier. So you have, you know, that's always there. But this is a tricky turn in the movie because you are in a grounded thriller up until this moment and suddenly it becomes a science fiction film. And so for the audience maybe who are not used to watching comic book movies who, be, who came because it's a thriller, this throws them for a loop a little bit. This is a, you know, this, this rocks the boat a little bit. Um, you know, but we, you know, again, we tried to ground it in the sort of creepy expression uh, of, uh, of sound and noises and, and Toby's performance. 
Uh, that let's talk about the war games joke for a second. I think that was that, <laughs> that was on the day. It was too. written on the day, yeah. like five minutes before we shot it. Yeah. Mm. One is a way to lighten the tension in the scene. Two is a way to illustrate what the scene is actually about. We felt like it's a it's a right. it's a pop culture reference we could make that would actually allow you to understand what's going on right. here. Right? I mean, what hap- usually what happens in these cases is that Joe and Anthel um, early in the morning uh, block out the scene with the actors, and if there's something that needs to be readdressed, they'll come to us. And we'll put our coffee and bagel down and tr- kind of bang out, uh, you know, eight or ten options. And the best one wins. You know, that's usually what happens. This is the proverbial midpoint of the movie. It's sort of that, that moment in the movie where, uh, you know, you, you sort of get the information that allows you to begin pushing toward the end. So there's a lot of... Uh, Cap learns a lot here. And it's an incredibly complicated conspiracy, and we needed a a conceit like Zola uh, to get this conspiracy out. Um, You know, as you guys mentioned, to to be able to pass as much information to the audience this quickly. Mm -hmm. Also, this is, you know, this is a very detailed description of how Steve Rogers essentially failed in his mission. He thought he died to destroy Hydra, and Hydra... Did so much better after he left than before. We should say that you know you can't make a decision like this um, without Marvel sort of coming in and, and weighing in. So in fact, this idea, uh, although it has been explored in in the comics, um, uh, is Kevin Feige coming in saying, "I think we're, let's go with the, let's run with the idea that Hydra has been behind Shield the whole time," and that really opens up storytelling. You know, this idea that this the conspiracy we're aiming towards is that the very thing, as Chris said, that. Uh, Steve struggled and died to, to prevent. I think a, a lot of people have, have glommed onto this concept as a, you know trying to illustrate some sort of um, uh, political agenda on the part of the movie. I mean, certainly, yes, we're all informed and we're all politically inclined, and we all like to read and uh, and have thoughts and opinions. But you know, at the end of the day, it is a, it is a comic book film. Uh, we we did put uh, as much political thought as we could into the film because that's what raises again what uh, we talked about this earlier it gives you an immediate sense of immediacy Mm -hmm. but uh um you know it's uh it's meant to be a a parable i think that is is translatable to whichever side of the party line you fall on but steve rogers is a product of his time and if you're not a comic book fan you think captain america you think jingoist you know sort of propaganda piece but if you if you know the comics uh, you know, every time something happens in the world, uh, he gets to address it. And that's another one of the reasons that Kevin wanted to do this. In the comics, uh, Cap get, when Stanley brought him back in 63, Cap gets to, uh, you know, address uh, hippies and the civil rights movement and Watergate and all that mm-hmm. stuff. And our MCU Cap, our movie Cap, missed all that. And he missed 9-11. So he gets to address where we are now without having seen the de- the things that happened to to... to to force the decisions we've made to get to the right. place where we are. And one of the great things in the comics, then, that we hope to replicate in this is his reaction is never the sort of knee-jerk, old man, conservative reaction that you would think, you know, the man dressed in the American flag would have. Because because he is, it's what people forget, is exemplifies the spirit of America, not a party, not a not a government, so that... He's never going to fall along, you know, a political line. He's, he stands for an ideal. Yeah, he stands for principles yeah. you know, that, are, that are translatable across the board. Uh, what, what he is against in this film is uh, 
subversion and, and subterfuge and lies and, and uh, um, you know, uh, the, the line between uh, uh, freedom and fear. Yeah, he uh, questions the decisions, what we've given up to be secure, you know. He, he gets not, us to yeah, look at it again. He did not have the same slow descent into cynicism that we have all had right. over the last 40 years. Yeah. So he comes at it with fresh eyes. Yeah, fresh eyes. That's a big, that's a great value in the work that we do in the uh, movie business. You want to see why we need some fresh eyes. So this was a this was a big scene, and I think it uh, it it was inspired by uh, Bob's participation in the movie. Right. We needed a moment, uh, you know, to sort of for him to take the mask off, as it were. And we went back to Three Days of the Condor, uh, at least for the setting. This sort of you know nice house with a, a man coming down. In this case, you know, there's a scene in it where uh, Atwood, who's the deputy CIA director, comes down to find Robert Redford with the music cranked up, sitting behind Atwood's own desk with a gun. And this is sort of the inspiration for this, is that you think he's come down and the assassin is here to kill him, but the reversal is that he's there for instructions. Yeah, what's nice, I mean, that this sort of structure happens probably about three times in the movie where someone comes into a place thinking they'll be alone and somebody is already there, which, you know, is unsettling. slightly symbolic of the fact that Hydra has been there all along. Fury's there when Steve comes in. Winter Soldier's here. Fury's there again later in the in the in the cave. And this was important for us as somebody iconically good as as Redford on screen uh, um, would actually kill someone in cold blood. Uh, we felt would be again would have a cultural impact on the audience. Poor Renata. Even, even if you guessed that he was the villain going into the movie, when you see a scene like that, you, you understand the depths to which you know he's villainous to to how. Uh, um, how fanatical he is for his cause. Hey, man. I'm sorry about this. This this was a very tricky three lines or four lines of dialogue. Mm-hmm. If I remember, this was rewritten five or six times trying to figure out what exactly would transpire between these characters on this porch to allow, you know, Sam to let them in. Her line gets a laugh mm-hmm. in yeah. every theater I'm in, so and I had no idea it would get a laugh. That would be funny. Uh, but that's actually one of my favorite lines in uh, in the film, and I think it's really illustrative of Sam Wilson's character. Well, not everybody. Not everybody. Yeah. But, uh, in, in a line, you you tell the audience exactly who he is and exactly why, uh, you know, he he's trusted. And this is sort of the the bookend to the truck scene from earlier. Yeah, these are two of my favorite scenes in the movie. I love these two together. I think they're great, and I think they really lended a lot of credibility to the movie um, with their acting. Uh, this is a shift from uh, some of the other MCU films, only in that it was it's shot on much longer lenses. It's handheld. Something we alluded to like 40 minutes ago was the, the look of this movie. And it was a very specific choice to try and ground the material. It's a choice that we made on Arrested Development many years ago which was when we we read the script, we knew how absurdist it was that it would be hard to translate those characters to an audience. Uh, um, And so we we made the choice to shoot it as realistically as we we possibly could, which is is, uh, what would come to be known as a mockumentary style, Uh, because it's what you're doing is you're taking incongruous elements, which are absurdism and realism, and you're smashing them into each other. Similar thing here with a comic book film, which is traditionally known for its, its fantasy elements, what if you shot it as realistically as you possibly could? You, you gave it a, uh, um, you know, the, the lighting had a naturalism to it. The lenses were much closer to their faces to, to you know, glean performance and texture and, 
in emotion. And you find out that superheroes actually eat breakfast. Mm-hmm. Right. That's true. But that, that was the approach with the camera work in the film. Also, we felt that that would um, heighten the tension in the action sequences. It give right. you, again, we love this word immediacy, puts you there. It makes you feel like you're part of what's happening and unfolding. It's, it's happening in real time. Um, you know, heat was a huge influence on us. You, the, the bank heist in heat, the camera is so subjective, sits over Val Kilmer and Robert De Niro's shoulders as they are shooting up the streets outside the bank. Uh, and I remember watching that in the theater going, my God, this is what it must feel like right. to be in the middle of a of a shootout. Well, that's one of the real successes, I think, of, of the movie, and particularly the directing of the movie, is that, I mean, I hear from so many people that uh, I really thought people might die, mm-hmm. that characters I was watching might actually buy it in this. And I think in large part that's because of the lenses you're talking about and the uh, the immediacy. That and the brought. performance, too, because like this is my favorite Anthony Mackie scene in the movie, and he is just so real and naturalistic. Like, you really see the soldier here. Which is great because it's also where he's he is presenting the most comic booky thing is you yeah, know you don't true. see it in the scene but he's saying I you know I have a wingsuit and can fly <laughs> like a bird but because it's coming from this incredibly natural place where they're all eating breakfast together right. it it feels right I always get a big laugh right yeah. uh, but I think you know what's what's nice is people have pointed out how much they like seeing him because it to them it explains his motivation in Iron yeah, Man too sure. mm-hmm. is that oh you know now now uh, retroactively uh, he's Hydra. I get it. Uh, that's why he was, uh, um, uh, you know, trying to uh, uh, outmaneuver Tony Stark. Right. Well, it's also this is part of the fun of now that this Marvel universe is so big with so many films to pull from, is that we needed a senator. We needed we needed to show how far Hydra could reach. Right. And it turns out there already was a senator, and he was a jerk. <laughs> so we hey, could Hydra. pull him in <laughs> and use him. Spawned an internet meme. It's yes. Funny. Yes. Bert and Ernie. <laughs> yes, sir. A lot of this, I love the end of the scene with the laser sight on his chest. And a lot of this, again, was all of us sitting around in a room going, okay, well, what would happen? How could they get Sitwell to walk around the corner? What, what were the pieces that they would have to do to get him... Uh, you know, they trick him on the phone so he sends his guards away. And then, you know, Scarlet, obviously, uh, uh, being a highly trained assassin, would be an incredible asset in a moment like this. There had actually been a version where Sam was just going to fly down and literally pluck him off oh, the street right. and fly away. But it seemed a, a bit much. Yeah. I mean, look, that's the thing that you were talking about earlier, how we keep kicking the tires on the car. We keep, you know heating it up. I mean, that's the thing when you're making a Marvel movie is the bar is so high that you have to keep digging and pushing and uh, till, till everything just sings as well as Him, it can. Uh, Sitwell being thrown through the door there, it's the way you keep an audience off balance is something, that, again, we've learned from, like, you know, a freak and who was a master at sound work was, uh, you know, y- you follow up quiet moments with jolting sound, and, uh, and it keeps you off balance as a viewer, especially in a, a paranoid thriller and there's, there, it creates energy and tension for you. Yeah. Uh, yeah. So you go from a quiet conversational scene to suddenly, bam. This was uh, something we thought about for months and months too, the, uh, the, how we were gonna reveal the Falcon flying for the first time. It was very, you know, we played with a lot of different options. Were we gonna see him catch him in midair? Right, mm-hmm. um, right. Did it play on camera, did it play off camera? Yeah. 
It ended up, you know, we just kept testing different versions of the scene, and this is where we ended up. We should say this. The idea of the algorithm is a late invention, um, in large part to get to uh, sort of a, a, we call it a, the second pinch of the movie, right? The midpoint was, oh, my God, uh, Hydra's behind S.H.I.E.L.D., and the end of Act 2 is, oh, my God, Bucky's the Winter Soldier. But what's that, what's the thing that joins those two, you know, 15, 20-minute chunks together? And it was this idea that, um, and I think it's probably one of you guys, uh, this idea of the algorithm that was being put into satellites, and it's this extra beat, this extra layer of villainy that's going to that's gonna predict who our enemies are going to be. To predict their future. And what then? Oh my God, Pierce is going to kill me. What then? Then the inside helicarrier scratched people off the list. And clearly, you know, predictive technology is not, uh, you know, we're 10 to 15 years away from uh, being able to, you know, accurately predict mm. uh, uh, human behavior. We knew you were going to get this DVD before mm, exactly. you did. <laughs> now we should. Max Hernandez is great in this film. And yes. I'd love to see him in another Marvel film, but I'm not sure even however they saved Coulson could save him from that. <laughs> well, people say nobody dies in the Marvel Universe. Right. I think that guy's dead. Sit well, he's dead. <laughs> so this is a sequence that was very much inspired by the, uh, the heat sequence I think Joe mentioned earlier in the commentary, uh, the bank heist sequence in Heat. It's a lot of, look, we're, we're film geeks and film buffs, and that's really how we came into filmmaking was uh, from an academic point of view and, um, and guys who sat around watching movies every weekend or going to the Cinematheque or, you know, I worked at Blockbuster for years and, and you know, would bring home four movies a night, and we watched everything. And so there's a lot of influences in there, clearly the Terminator. You know, you've got a character who is relentless and unstoppable, um, which for us... We've always said that, you know, that it's the old adage that the, you know, that the, the hero is only as interesting as the villain. Uh, mm -hmm. And that, you know, the, the, the threat of the villain is not significant, it, the, the, then the hero is not significant. This also was, a lot of this was, again, just sitting in a room thinking about What's the reality of a character like this? He would have every weapon in the book. He would be relentless. He doesn't lose. Uh, when he's sent to kill you, you're dead. Uh, and, and the only one who can barely escape is, is Captain America. Again, if Captain America is the world's greatest soldier, he's the world's greatest assassin. Soldier. It's, it's a doppelganger, right? The, the, these guys are e equally as potent. Cap has a shield. He has a bionic arm. Um, and, uh, and they're equally matched, which is what makes, or, you know, I, and I've even heard people say that they, they felt that Winter Soldier looked, appeared to be stronger than Cap, which is great, because that's what you want. You want the audience to, to, to feel that, he, you know, that, that your hero may not survive this. Right. Mm -hmm. There is a visceral quality to it. I love this shot with the shadow. Mm -hmm. That was uh, uh, Darren Denlinger, our storyboard artist, that he came up with that shot. That car sequence, I think, was pitched originally in one of our, uh, in our initial pitch meeting, again, to win the movie. Yes, yes, right? I remember you guys coming in with, and she has the gun, and she shoots it, uh, shoots through the ceiling, and she shoves right. everyone out of the way. And he rips and, the steering mm -hmm. wheel out. Yeah.
Bon. I think it, I mean, that's one of those happy accidents, right? right. Because by, by virtue of having to just go into the city, it gets frightening, almost too frightening. Uh, it gets really real, you know? Yeah, there's a stomach-turning realism, too. Yeah, absolutely. Especially when you see Winter Soldier walking down the street, loaded for bear. Um, but you do get more interesting elements, like the minigun sequence. Right. Which uh, was, um, you know, there was a sequence at the beginning of the film uh, there was a World War II set sequence that involved Cap versus a machine gun mm -hmm. uh, that, that we cut for uh, length and time. Uh, we never shot it, but it was Cost. in the script phase. But, uh, um, uh, but we took the concept of, of Cap fighting a gun and, and, and moved it into this sequence. But this is an example of how the shield can do what we want. So sometimes things, right. it, it absorbs impact. In this right. case, it sends yeah. the bullets the back. Theoretically, the there other. should be no wreckage. <laughs> <of that. laughs> Very good point. Yeah. Uh, that we want, you know, the, here's the other thing, obviously, is it, it was, as we're uh, storyboarding the sequence and going through it going, you know, where are the police in this? Wait, there's a guy shooting up the street. What is the response time to this, right? Okay, so maybe once the car flips, uh, you, you, there's going to be uh, 4911 calls and, and, you know, you would expect a two-minute two, two response. So we wanted to just show that, that the world is responding to it and, uh, and the, the villainy of this character uh, is that he will ruthlessly murder anyone who gets in his way in cold blood. Very little phases him. This beat, by the way, is a result of uh, Scarlett being smarter than the screenwriters um, because we had put in a thing where her shoes were still there and, you know, we panned over to the shoes and she's not in the shoes. And then I think she at one point said, am I really going to be barefooted for the next, right. you know, however long on this movie? And we said, no, you probably should not be barefooted the rest of this. Right. And then think how we had that, that super gadget phone. Yes. But again, it is, you know, it ended up, like you say, it ended up, you know, you end up with a cooler idea yeah. sometimes. And it's mm -hmm. This is a very important moment in the movie because, again, this plays into the reality of, yeah. uh, you know, what are the stakes for our characters? She seems genuinely afraid right, of this right. guy. Yeah. Oh, this is the second time she's been shot by him. By five kings. But he, you know, she is, she's dead if it's not for Steve. She would have been dead. I think we could talk about the stunt team for a minute here. Um, uh, and especially Cap's double, a, guy named, a gentleman named Sam Hargrave, who's just spectacular and I think really embodies uh, Captain America as much as Chris does. You know, he mm. really represents the physical aspects of the character. He's an incredible, incredible martial artist and an incredible stuntman. Um, we had a phenomenal uh, fight choreography in this movie. Uh, we love uh, f the good fight sequences. Again, as a fanboy and a comic book fanatic, this is my dream fight between uh, Bucky and, uh, and Steve, you know, it's Cap and Winter Soldier. Well, I remember when we were talking about it, one of the things you wanted that's really great is for him to just keep pulling weapons like cap knocks one out of his pocket you know one he pulls a knife out of his pocket knocks out the knife he pulls out a gun pulls out another gun just sort of he is a killing machine right he doesn't lose yeah uh he will he's he, he's got seven ways to kill you uh and that's what makes him so threatening is that he's relentless in his uh his attempts to murder you 
Um, another great moment. I know a lot of people like the flashier knife flip. I think that one is a brilliant one where he comes across the shield with it and then drops it into his other hand. Right. Mm. But this is the first fight in the movie where we've got super soldier versus super soldier. And, you know, there's a, there's a, we, we, we worked very hard to ratchet up the speed and the intensity. Mm -hmm. Now, the, needless to fight. say, this is the revelation of Bucky. Right. Which, you know, anybody who's read the comic knows who the Winter Soldier is. But we couldn't go into the movie just sort of broadcasting that. We had to play it for suspense. And to do it at the end of Act Two, when when the whole world is falling in on Steve to find out that the one thing he thought he knew, that his best friend was dead, was not even true. It was just a great way to pull the rug, the final rug out I mean, from under him. That's it. one of the reasons this this is perhaps more emotional than than most other comic book movies is because. Uh, you know, we always decide what's the worst thing that can happen to your character, and that's sort of where you're driving for the end of Act Two. And it was pretty clear that the worst thing that could happen to my main character is that, you know, my best friend who I thought was dead is a killing machine. Yeah. So that gives you a structure to sort of work towards and work away from. Um, uh, you know, I think pretty effective in this case. Well, a, uh, one of our big pitches to Kevin, first time we met on the movie, was that this is Star Wars. Right. You have, uh, it's so rare that you have such an emotional connection between a hero and a villain, emotional stakes between the two of them. It's even, in a way, it's even more tragic because it's, it's your best friend, it's your brother. It's in the, you know, uh, you know, fathers and sons, are, you know, are notorious for their conflict. Uh, but, you know, the best friends, uh, uh, you know, turned into mortal en enemies is incredibly operatic. Um, conflict. We need to get a We're about to have uh, twist number 238. <laughs> <laughs> Again, this came through the process of, well, how do they escape? You know, who do we have in our back pocket? Maria Hill. Uh, you know, there's a real Maria Hill done, passed out on the script later in the process, I think, where we where, you know, we, we really were able to weave her into the movie, yeah. all of us. Uh, um, you know, find, find a way for her to be impactful in the events. And how do you make her not just the person who stands next to Fury and says, yes, sir, yes, sir? Right. Well, it's great because in a, in a movie where he's incapacitated, you need a proxy, and she's the proxy, which actually gives a lot of power to her as a character. And again, here we go with her. Yeah, it turns technology. out she, she's got one of those lightsabers, too. They used it again. But I think that's almost meta. Like, we are <laughs> winking at the convenience of it by using it, is. it twice. It is a very... <laughs> Should we say community-like? Uh, <laughs> That's fair. You know, uh, um, and here's the good doctor. Yep. Once again, goes the Agbo. The um, uh, but it is no, it is a it is a de Deus ex machina kind of uh, approach. But um, you know, look, the, the thing is, is when you take an academic approach to this stuff, you, you can appreciate it and make fun of it at the same time. And I think, um, you know. Historically, that um, uh, you know, just even just through our work on shows like on Arrested Development or Community, that's traditionally what we've done is, is we are we are uh, both reverential and subversive at the same time, and it adds it adds fun to it. It's a, it's a comic book film. We're having right. fun with it. You know, you, you you're making the biggest buy when you sit down to watch the movie, which is that you know people with superpowers could actually exist. And once you buy that, uh, we can take you all kinds of places. Tetrodotoxin B, for right, example. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> Another way to, uh, yeah. you know, to interweave the universe without actually making every movie the Avengers 
nice little things like that where, you know, Banner had worked on something to help prevent him from being the Hulk didn't work. Right. But Fury found a way to use it. Love that. Just fascinating to me. I, I guess because I, I collected comics as a kid, it just it never crosses my mind as to where anybody else is. That's no. That's, that's the rules of comic books, right. you know. Otherwise, we wouldn't have a, a singular hero stories. Everybody, every every hero in the Marvel universe should be in everybody's books, uh, uh, because uh, you know uh, if, if we're playing by those rules. Well, there's yeah, there's no way to justify it on a narrative level. So you, it's it's just a buy. That's what it is. Now, this was just a great bank vault that you guys found in Cleveland. It right? was. It was a really interesting location. We were trying to think about somewhere unique other than, like, a generic warehouse where they would house the Winter Soldier. And because Hydra has infiltrated the Halls of Power, why can't they, you know, why can't they have a bank, you know? Um, this is, a, I think, my favorite Redford scene in the movie. Uh, I like the uh, intensity that he brings to the scene. And again, it's almost uh, more fierce than shooting the maid is, is the way that he treats Bucky in the scene, slapping him across the face. And you get a real understanding that he, that he is the uh, the handler. Well, it's ama an amazing, you know, just the way he does carrot and stick, carrot and stick with Winter Soldier in the scene is yeah. very kind of heartbreaking. Well, it also gives you an idea of, like, what, Bucky's been through for the past 70 years. Yeah. It's just wipe, kill, Murder, wipe, wipe, kill. kill. But here's the thing. like it, it, The hardest thing to do for, as an actor is to is sort of act without dialogue. And Sebastian Stan did just such a, an incredible job with this character, gave him so much life and complexity and, and texture without a lot of dialogue. And mm -hmm. it's, you really see, you see his wheels turning in the scene. Well, and he conveyed, he conveyed incredible menace just through movement for a good 60 minutes in the movie. And Hydra can't give the world. And that is the hardest job in acting. It's always, it's always very difficult uh, uh, to convey uh, emotion without speaking. Although Ed Brubaker in this scene is doing a wonderful, wonderful. job <laughs> of doing that. Yeah. He sure is. It must have been an emotional scene for him. There's Ed. It's Ed, yeah. creator and of the Pat Healy. This was again, uh, you know, our process. A lot of times is is a, is film geekdom, you know, and and um, I think it was uh, Stravinsky said that uh, uh, good musicians don't borrow, they steal. Well, we steal a lot. And this is uh, uh, this was uh, this is Han Solo in The Empire Strikes Back getting tortured. Uh, mm. I remember being 11 or 12 in the theater, watching him scream as they walked away, thinking, "Oh my God, it's horrifying." Our innovation was to remove his shirt, right. <laughs> but we wanted the same effect where you know you feel you feel the pain of this tortured soul. And again, a really loud moment that goes into a quiet moment. Mm -hmm. This is one, you know, in screenwriting, you're going to have, oh, two or three sort of exposition scenes. You know, this is perhaps one of our more blatant ones um, where we have, you, you need to get all this under your belt in order to know what you're looking at in the third act. And so, in fact, this, there was a, this is one of the very few days of reshoots, you know, in order to sort of, uh, you know, set up the three blades and so you knew what you'd be looking at. Uh, this is also a glamorous uh, set. Mm -hmm. uh, which a was a sanitation 
It was like a sewage sanitation plant. Sewage, right? tre sewage treatment plant in Cleveland. I no longer have any of the clothes. That that, I yeah, it smelled now, fantastic in 80-degree heat in When Cleveland. we scouted it, it was the middle of winter. So we were down there in freezing temperatures, and it was creepy and fascinating and textured. And then we came back to shoot in the middle of summer, and it was very different. <laughs> different aroma. Um, no, I'm shocked that the actors got through it because it was, it was rough. Uh, but maybe it added to the... Uh, <laughs> To the milieu. Uh, again, this is again where the movie shifts, right? It goes from the thriller to a mission film. This is mm. this, the, this outlines the, this is the scene in Star Wars where we're getting the uh, the, the plans of the Death Star, and uh, you know, we're 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 laying out the mission that Cap needs to accomplish in the next thirty-five minutes. Well, it's also where he really comes to come to the fore. You know, as Fury says, he's giving the orders now. It's this is. He's taking charge. Well, that's the thing. It's Cap's fidelity to himself and his his sort of and his nature. You know, you saw it in the Black Widow scene in the bedroom, where where his sort of his offer of friendship to her finally prevails, and now it's his his offer of leadership, mm. and, and through the problems of this movie, finally prevails with Fury. And it's an like, it's an MCU moment too, because right. it's really he's being given control now of the Avengers as well. This is a leadership moment for him on all levels. We always wanted to have a skinny Steve scene in this movie, and it, it traveled around to various points before finally arriving here, just to you know give you that reminder of what the relationship between these two people was that has changed so radically in now to the present day. And again, if you hadn't seen the first film. It was right. really hard to settle on, okay, we, we, we need to go back and we need to see a moment where Steve and Bucky were friends. And, it's like, and so the question is, what moment is that? Mm. And uh, we explored a lot of possibilities. And also, we wanted a trigger uh, for. We needed uh, a yeah. There's a line that that comes back. Right. But that line has always been in there. Um, and it's uh, actually this. I think it was this scene, wasn't it? In some. Yeah. Version? I think we did a long road to come back to we the did. original yeah. scene. You know. Yeah. yeah. And what's great, uh, what we like about this, it, 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 the scene was moved from uh, in, uh, the scene actually used to come after Steve was arrested. Exactly. Mm -hmm. Right. And before you saw him inside the. Uh, uh, the transport van uh, with his hands cuffed. Uh, and then I think it was Kevin's idea to move it back to here, which I actually think works very well because it uh, it juxtaposes his history with his old friend and his new friend. Yeah, right, right. that's a good point. Now, look, if you're going to, you know, you know, you get, you got to do the Stan Lee cameo, so you got to do it right. That guard could stop a tank. I am so... Tess, we felt like it was the most, uh, uh, it was the best use of Stan in the film because it's the turning point moment, right? It's a great setup. And, and we'll talk about his outfit here for a second. And another thing to talk about the visuals of the movie. Um, and I know it was uh, to, to the consternation of many, but we stripped a lot of the color uh, out of this film and out of the Marvel Universe. And it's, it literally is all a choice that is a setup leading to that exact moment, mm -hmm. which is when he, when he returns to the uniform, he returns to his principles. Uh, you know, the stealth outfit, uh, the design of S.H.I.E.L.D. headquarters, the Triskelion, the gray and beige and, and the sort of neutral colors that exist throughout the movie, uh, um, the cold blues are, are all there to serve in contrast and to represent the institutional nature of of the of the organization and of the world that Cap is living in, and then when he makes a choice to don his uniform, it's the one 
real piece of color in the movie, and 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 really the one piece use real real use of red in the film. Uh, Danny Pudi cameo. <laughs> one of uh, many many Easter eggs in the movie. This is uh, leading up to our favorite uh, Robert Redford moment in the film is when... Uh, oh, yeah. When he gets outed? When yeah. Steve Rogers outs him. <laughs> and he was a little shrug. Right. <laughs> Bob makes what his way around the table and offers a little shrug. This speech also moved a little bit. It used to be he made it sort of off the cuff when he was down in the middle of the battle and needed to rally everybody. But it made sense that someone as forward as Steve Rogers doesn't really do a guerrilla attack. He comes in and announces his, there's the shrug, uh, announces his intentions because he's not, you know, there's no sneaking in the world of Captain America. Right, he's also trying to rally the troops and, and, and see if he can create, I mean, it's a way to flush out who the bad guys and the good guys are, right? Mm -hmm. You you, uh, you rip the band-aid off and see who runs. Um, great performance from a, a, a young actor who was also from Community named Aaron Himmelstein, who played a character uh, uh, in season one, episode nine, in the debate episode. He was a, a nemesis. Uh, a Jeff, uh, Jeff Winger's debate nemesis, wheel, wheelchair-bound debate nemesis. <laughs> But uh, came in to play this part, um, and I think really embodied nicely the difference between uh, uh, Shield and Hydra, who were Shield and who were Hydra, and, um, and showed, uh, you know, uh, um, uh, sh you know, the good Shield folks right. wanted someone were, to be inspired, right, being inspired, and, by and, not, and not necessarily someone you already knew. No, and, and it was in the spirit of grounding that kind of a moment, and you know, the idea of, of following Cap is a difficult thing to do, and there's great risk at it, and you really see that in his performance, the sort of courage to follow Cap, but also the the fear of the costs, and that's what's so wonderful about this moment between him and Rumwell. And that's why it's great to have a guy like Frank Grillo. Uh, in your movie because he can take a scene like this and turn it uh, very tense. Yeah, Grilla was so intense in the scene. I remember when we were shooting, it was just so exciting uh, seeing him in there to enter that room. So pitting so pitting so him against this poor kid. Yeah, mm. it's, a, it's just one of the scarier scenes in the movie only because the, uh, the you know, it's a fairly violent scene. It ends, ends very violently. Like he said, Captain's orders. You picked the wrong side, Agent. Depends on where you're standing. You know, I also think this came out of conversations. We're trying to figure out how to get out of this scene, and the, the concept of a Mexican standoff mm -hmm. came up. Um, and it is. It's a tricky scene. Uh, and, you know, uh, how to get Sharon out of it alive. How to get Rumlow out of it alive. And yet how to get the... Right. Get the killer carries in the air. Yeah. Does anyone get shot here? A lot of people get shot. You just don't. See. We don't <laughs> linger on it. We don't linger on it. It's a PG-13 film. Mm. Now, I mean, now maybe is the time to talk about the setting of the Triskelion. It was very exciting to like sort of add this presence to the DC skyline, and you know, we thought a lot about where to put it, and there was something very appealing about setting it there on Roosevelt Island in the Potomac for a number of reasons. You know, on one side of the building, you see this earlier in the movie, you see on one side of the building there's sort of classical DC and what that represents. And on 
the other side of the river you have Roslyn, Virginia with all the new modern glass towers. Mm-hmm. I also like the way it's sort of consumed the island. Yeah, it's totally. Not, it hasn't just, it's not a building island. on the island, it's it eats the swallowed island. the island. But it's very, again, it's like you try to, you try to work the theme of the film and then into all the fabric of, of your choices, design choices, and this, have this building sort of sitting between the past and the, and the sort of present or future. Um, and a grab bag of uh, pop culture references. Hey, Cap, how do we know the good guys from the bad guys? If they're shooting at you, they're bad. There's also a very practical thing, and again, in our narrative, again, it's a it's a thriller, but it's a superhero movie. You have to write, strike the right tonal balance. I mean, we were going to bring down three helicarriers over Washington, D.C., and you can't have them crashing into the city. So right. if they're going straight up from the river, they fall straight down back to the river. And it's the way we avoided mass tragedy. We should talk about ILM real quick. We did an incredible job of bringing Falcon to life. You know, this was a character, uh, one of the first books I collected as a kid was a Captain America Falcon team-up. And I had a lot of problems with Falcon as a character when I was a kid. Uh, I hated his suit. I looked like he belonged in a 70s glam rock band to me. Uh, and, you know, in a universe where, in the MCU, where you've got, you know, these dynamic visual characters like the Hulk and Iron Man and Thor, how do you introduce a guy who, who's, who, who glides and talks to birds? It's a very, it's a tough character to demand screen time. Uh, and, um, you know, I think all of us pushed for this militaristic approach to him where basically he's a human fighter jet. And the, uh, I'm going to throw one more reference out there, the guns, <laughs> the, the guns that he uses are, uh, are you know, are taxi driver slash Alien 3, the sort of, mm. you know, flip out guns because we sat around thinking about the concept of, well, how does he fly and then how does he hold his guns? And then we thought, well, what if the guns are activated uh, uh, when he moves his arms forward so that it's, uh, you know, the, the whole thing's intuitive. The whole outfit is intuitive, right? right? It's all designed for, for a military use. Uh, so if he's coming in for an attack and he has to let go of the wings, the wings go rigid on their own, and he brings his arms forward, and, of course, the guns pop out. Uh, and then when his arms go back, the guns recede. And you'll see those here in a minute. It was important to us that he, you know, that he also, that Falcon have some kick-ass weaponry um, and, and be able to defend himself. Because if you're not going to send a guy like that in who's a, a, you know, a paratrooper who's sent behind lines to rescue people without a defense. Like, now we're in the part of the movie where, you, we, you know, because of what's happening with these helicarriers, etc., we couldn't shoot. Uh, uh, this big battle, climactic battle, practically, you know, mm. we had to shoot it in a more traditional computer graphics way, where we're shooting elements, of course, but we're combining them with um, things that are generated uh, in the computer. Um, but we did, you know, our, our effects team very much studied how we had shot the movie up till this point, and tried very hard to like uh, uh, pattern things and tweak things so that we were, it was all uh, stylistically of a piece that was very important to us that it, it all felt of a piece and we didn't turn into uh, a different movie here. Should maybe go back and talk about Scarlett pulling off her face or Jenny Agutter pulling off her face. <laughs> oh yeah. One, 
Jenny Agutter did all did that fight. She, she was did. awesome. <laughs> She's amazing. And the it. audience, the audiences really dig it when they see. I think every every time we've shown it, I really, I think that the audience really wants it to be Jenny Agutter. <laughs> and that was another moment where it was like, is this, you know, one step over the line into into comic books? But it just works so well. And you know, you have flying aircraft carriers. Why couldn't you have a fake face? Right. Well, I'll remind you that in uh, the first Captain America. Uh, the Red Skull has a Hugo weaving face. Mm, right. Yes. So we've it's established. A right. Know, the faces is, are. Uh, not an issue. And Good listen, point. there's a lot of shield tech in this movie of, 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 of varying degrees. Uh, and it's just another piece of shield tech. And she is a, uh, a you know, a, a secret operative after all. Yeah. Uh, you know, Sam gets some of the more dynamic sequences in this third act, which is great because it's really. Our hope that in the movie he doesn't come across as a sidekick, he comes across as a partner to Cap. That was a, a, an agenda of everyone's, was to make sure that he, um, you know, he occupied his own story space in the movie and didn't feel like an afterthought. And, uh, you know, this third act wouldn't, ha you know, the, 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 this mission would not be accomplished without his contribution. Bravo Locke. This was an interesting sequence. Uh, again, I think the you know the violence of this sequence is to illustrate the threat from this character. Um, right before he engages with Cap, you get to see again uh, how vicious and unstoppable he is, and, and how relentless he is. This is probably the most disturbing moment in the film. Yep. Oh. Equivalent of uh, of uh, Indiana Jones, in the propeller. Mm. Yeah, in the propeller. I kill him point blank and and steals his jet, uh, and and then you send him up into a conflict with Cap. With the you know the, the hopes from a narrative standpoint are that you feel the danger coming for Captain America. Death comes for Captain America. This was a very challenging act because we have a lot of a lot of parallel stories going on in this battle, and just sort of the the weaving together of them, you know, you sort of execute it in a way in the script that feels right, and then you you get into the editing and it's sort of like things change for some reason. There's an old adage that, you know, you make a movie three times over when you write it, when you shoot it, when you edit it. So, um, I think maybe more so than any other part of the movie you know, sort of shifting the rhythms of how we throw from beat to beat here in Act 3. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, our uh, editor, Jeff Ford, had, a, had to do a lot of experimenting. And this is another moment where, where Redford really pulls off the... He makes the villainy human. There's, you know, if you got somebody with a mustache and a, and a pointy goatee to say he was going to kill 20 million people, you'd go, bad guy. But Nick Fury? No, I'm just... Uh, uh, but... Uh, you know, Redford really makes it seem like a philosophy. And, you know, he, he's got a point. Well, that's the thing. Is this authoritarianism, authoritarianism is like is rearing its head again in another form. Well, the movie tests philosophy, right? Mm -hmm. right? The whole point of the film is he, he's a bureaucrat who's not much further than bureaucrats we, we, we've all come to know in our lives. right? His thinking is just an extrapolation of a kill list, mm -hmm. uh, which is... Uh, if there are 10 individuals deemed dangerous, uh, do we have the right to kill them? What if there's 1,000? Well, what if there's 10,000? Well, what if there's a million? At what point? We, if we can effectively psychologically profile people, 
than than we have them. And what what are the constraints of that profile? Where where do you draw the line? You need to keep both eyes open. Always wanted to expose Pierre's other eye. Yeah, but he, but he did. Which is great. Well, Sam actually came back by the happened. monitor and he was watching the daily. He was I was watching the playback of that mm. shot. And uh, and he said to us, he goes, ah, don't you guys think it's a little too dark? And we, you know, the whole movie's lit dark. Mm -hmm. We said, I don't know, maybe you're right. Let's go, let's do one more. We went back in and we lit his eye up more just because, you know, it was and such a big day. moment for him as a character. He just wanted to make sure that you could see the gnarliness of, of his eye. <laughs> That's what we used, yeah. This is a really great illustrative moment for, for the relationship between these two guys and the trust that they have. You know, there's a lot of conversations about how Falcon would carry cap right. without, <laughs> well, it, you without it look like a, looking like a bit from Saturday Night Live. From a, <laughs> you, you hit upon the right answer. <laughs> it was very hard to massage. Right. There goes his big breakfast. This is also amazing. Is this for Winter Rico? Who? Uh, yes, this is uh, Federico who uh, storyboarded this. Sequence yeah. exactly. Uh, who uh, he and Darren Denlinger have done a lot of the great sequences in Marvel films. Uh, this was a moment where he felt like, you know, in this form, with Sam this new of a hero, and with Winter Soldier that uh, um, nasty of a villain. That that's that's about how long uh, <laughs> uh, last. Falcon would last with <laughs> right. Winter Soldier. Right. Yeah, and this is sort of you know attempt of like you know real world grounding of the evacuation of a building. This is to illustrate Rumlow's, uh, um, you know, um, ruthlessness. You know, you know, ruthlessness and sociopathy. Uh, uh, before he has to engage Sam. Remlo's headed for the council. I'm on it. You know, you're, you're always, it is, Cap is Rocky, right? The, the, this, this third act is Rocky to the extent that you're watching him go 12 rounds with Apollo Creed. And, and a lot of what you try to do when, with these villain moments are to put the character on the ropes in a way that you feel like they may not come off the ropes. Uh, that's that's Rocky getting cornered and pummeled, you know. Mm -hmm. Big picture, we wanted to put um, Bucky. In, you know, we wanted Steve to have to go through his best friend in order to save the world. Right. You know, that's how you you bring the two big stories together. Uh, so it was sort of there were two moments we always drove towards, which was, uh, you know, the reveal of Bucky and, you know, Bucky as the obstacle to the end game. Yeah. What's nice is that he meets him on a catwalk here the same way. When he rescued him in the first movie, he had to meet the Red Skull on a catwalk. And there you get to see, you know, people always talk about, well, how come nobody ever shoots a round cap shield? Well, <laughs> he did shoot a round mm. shield there. Cap's actually very good with the shield, so he, he's hard to shoot. But, uh, you know, Buck, uh, uh, Winter Soldier had two guns there, and, uh, and by the end of that little display, he found a way to get him in the gut with it. Cap takes a pounding in this third act. It was really, again, really important to us that, that you know, one, not only that he fight his best friend, but two, that his best friend beat the crap out of him. And that, you know, the only way, that it took everything that Cap had to, to finish the mission. And again, Cap is the, you know, the one character who's always willing to die in order to see the mission through. Well, he's also willing to put, you know, his, again, part of his heroism is he's willing to put his personal motive 
uh, make his personal motive secondary to the collective motive, which is, you know, he's got a personal motive to, to connect to Bucky, but he first has to stop Bucky. Again, what's so disturbing about Redford's performance is the casualness, mm -hmm. which, which with he does everything in the movie. And he murders three guys there with, uh, with, with a look on his face as if he were, you know, reading the paper. And the, uh, you know, the, the fight sequences, again, in this film were painstakingly um, choreographed by our, our team uh, over, you know, many iterations. Um, we wanted a real brutality to these scenes and a viciousness to them. I mean, these guys are the, the most highly trained super soldiers. They are the highly trained soldiers in the world who happen to be super soldiers who are battling each other uh, to the death. It's not going to be pretty. And, uh, and, and Cap breaking Bucky's arm there is emblematic of that, uh, that the, the stakes are so high that, uh, that he doesn't think twice about breaking his arm to try and retrieve the, uh, the drive that he needs. We're always worried whether people understand that was a sleeper hold versus a, uh, a, a death, you know, a strangulation. Well, you've established him as being right. really hard to kill. This is going to hurt. This is the nod to crossbones right there. Mm -hmm. This is our Rocky II moment coming up. Right there. 65 seconds to satellite link. Targeting grid engaged. Lowering weapons are right now. A lot of thought process into all the graphics on all these screens and how these weapons would work. Um, uh, you know, the, the, how they would target individuals. You're gonna you know, fire projectiles that'll seek out, uh, um, you know, each individual target wherever they are, based on the triangulation with the satellites and and uh, and the and the body body imaging from the satellites. So here we are again, is what we we're talking about earlier, is that you know, putting Cap through everything we possibly could in order for him to win. I remember watching this with my eight-year-old daughter for the first time, and she started crying here and said, you're going to kill him. Oh. And I felt terrible, and I also thought, we did it. This is actually, <laughs> that's what we were trying to get here, was the, fe the feeling that he might not succeed. And now it's all back to the beginning. But mm -hmm. I think I'm sure you guys appreciated this, too, when you were kids. I always appreciated movies that treated me like an adult. Which oh, is sure. Why, I want to reach up right. and grab it. I don't want it, you know, exactly. handed down to me. Absolutely. Uh, why everybody loves The Empire Strikes Back is because it's the most adult of those three films. It's, mm -hmm. uh, it's, it's the scariest. Uh, the themes are the darkest. And I think why the, you know, the Harry Potter movies progress. Uh, right, and get darker uh, as they well. get darker sure. as they go and the stakes raise and... And there's a maturity uh, as, as, the, as those films progress. Where are the targets? Where are the targets? Okay, Cap, get out of there. This came up, I can't, maybe halfway through the process, right, of blowing these things out, having them blow each other out of the sky. Yeah, right. I think so, they. Yeah. I don't think they were originally intended to do that. I can't remember how we brought them down. It was the notion of. Um, I remember we were sitting in a room talking, going, God, if we're going to put these things up in the air with those kinds of guns on them, if those guns don't ever fire and I'm a 12-year-old, I'm going to be really upset. Right? Yeah. And then it was, well, what, what can those guns do? Well, what if we use them as like a, you know, a pirate ships broadsiding each other right. to take each other out of the sky? 
It's of course another one of Steve's uh, sacrificial moments. Always willing to put himself in danger of death, if not die, just to uh, complete the mission. We always said that um, that the whole movie lives or dies on that last scene between he and Bucky. That you know, this third act is uh, you know it's a fate complete in a way. It's a it, it's a superhero movie. Right. The I expectation sus- I suspect is, he will win, right? Mm. That he will win. But the real story is, will he win Bucky? Will he save his friend? Will his friend kill him? Uh, will he have to kill his friend? And the tragedy of, the, of that moment um, was, was the most important thing to us as directors in the third act. Was, that's, that's the real climax of the act. Yeah, from, from Jump Street, we always worked towards getting to I will sacrifice myself in order to reach my friend. And mm-hmm. so, end of the line has been the right. line since the very beginning. Um, and it, Sebastian nails it, it cracks him, you know. That's it, and like Joe said, on a storytelling level, it's like that's, that's what's moving you narratively through this part of the movie. The wonderful moment of Robert Redford actually saying Halide, which moved around in many places at the end here. It was in, it was out. Uh, ILM just did spectacular work in this third act. Um, you know, we really gave them a mandate that we wanted the effects as realistic as, as possible. We're big fans of Neil Blomkamp and District 9. Mm-hmm. We actually. To the point where. To the point where we <laughs> used his DP. Yeah. Uh, and, and you know the thing we've always said about his effects is that there's a there's a there's a world weariness to the objects, to the VFX objects in his films that they're weathered and worn and used, uh, and that's what makes them feel real. And it was always a, a a mandate for us when something didn't look weathered enough, we'd say, "Blown compet, let's go, get some more get some more weathering on that thing." You're out of your depth, kid. Very complicated sequence. I mean, it was on the cutting room, script-wise, for a while. But I guess I, I some would argue, kept fighting holy. to keep this thing in. But the scale—I always knew the scale of it would be, um, you know, significant, and that it—it it was a great moment to put Sam in jeopardy. And this helicopter jump has been in it since the beginning. Whether or not it's physically possible, I, I cannot <laughs> say. It's Nick Fury. And Scarlet has had a wardrobe change since her last <laughs> right. Right. scene. Significant wardrobe change. <laughs> uh, you know, yes, that, uh, it, that stretches credulity. Uh, but, you know, when we shortened the length of the jump, it wasn't as fantastic uh, to watch. And so sometimes you just, you know... You, no, I'm, I'm more than happy to... Yeah. And the whole whole film really comes down to this yeah. minute and a half. Can you tame the monster? Right. Yeah. No, I don't. Again, about Steve trying to save his past. It's the last thing he has left, really. Mm-hmm. Bucky. Uh, Chris's double, Sam Hargrave. There's a beat coming up here where Steve gets 
repeatedly pummeled in the face when he's lying on the ground. And Sam Hargrave, I think, had to whip his neck back maybe Oof. 50 or 60 times over the course of several takes. I'm not gonna fight you. You're my friend. Again, it's emblematic of pushing things to the limit here. As he's repeatedly punching him in the face, that this, that he will kill him. Finish it. And in fact, Steve is probably very near death here. He's been shot several times. He's been stabbed in the arm. He's been punched in the face by a, by a metal arm that's been shown to crack concrete. Now we're gonna drown him. Yeah, and hit him with whatever that is. <laughs> This was very early on. I can't remember. This shot came in very early on in the previs process, and I think at one point we said, you know, what if you slow this down? We'll make it more poetic because we want, you know, you you want to start the movie transitions here into a more into a more poetic mode uh, as as again as you try to trick the audience into believing that there's the potential for death here and that this may be uh, Steve's final moments. We don't, and, use and in fact, it is without Winter Soldier. It would be. His final moment. <clears throat> we don't we don't use slow mo anywhere else in the movie. And there was debate about whether we even show the arm or not, or whether it be, it's a surprise on the next shot. Mm -hmm. I, I think Henry Jackman did an amazing job with the score in this movie. It's incredibly expressionistic. Admittedly, we did not you know the movie's got a lot of pacing to it. We did not give him a lot of room to explore superhero themes as you traditionally would hear in a in a superhero film. The movie's this propulsive and we ask for a very propulsive tonal score. Uh, but when he strips everything out and goes to the piano here, it's a, it's a very sad and, and, uh, and tragic uh, um, you know, a piece of score that really, uh, really defines the moment. I mean, this is one of the reasons when some people bring up Empire Strikes Back, it's because you know, this, this story is only slightly finished, right? This, right. you know, this character you want to, is only slightly cracked open, mm -hmm. and there's so very clearly uh, a direction, you know, to be headed in a hypothetical uh, third movie. Well, I think you know people miss the concept when you, you call the movie Captain America: The Winter Soldier. The notion of the Winter Soldier is is from a quote from Payne about right. summer soldiers and winter soldiers, and winter soldiers are real soldiers because they're the soldiers who would fight through the winter. Yeah, I mean, in a way, they're. By Payne's definition, they're both winter soldiers. Right. Which That's is my right. point was. Which is, is that, the great thing about the you know, title. Yeah. People said he's the titular character. Why isn't he more of the movie? Well, really, Cap is the titular character. Cap is the winter soldier. The whole film is about a character who who is the greatest of soldiers, that he the will toughest. fight through the darkest times. He will fight through the darkest winter and the coldest winter to see to to, see, to have his principles seen through. That's really what the movie's about. And it, this is an introduction for the Winter Soldier that leads into what it would be a two-parter in Cap 3. We should talk about Trouble Man. Yes. You know, we, we, we should, right. Listen, uh, you know, it, it's, a, it's a callback to a reference when uh, on the mall when Sam first meets Cap and tells him, uh, you know, he adds the Cap list, Cap's list about what he needs to catch up on. And mm -hmm. we experimented with several different um, versions of what, what song or what music he points him to. And it's... We sort of ended up, the guys had had as one of the options the entire time, Trouble Man. Mm -hmm. And we ended up, it ended up working because, you know, Sam just sounded silly. Like, you know, if you used a seminal piece of music, it was sort of less charming than if you used an obscure piece of music. Right. Yeah. You know, luckily, one of you and had had that. 
Yeah, Chris, and Chris is a big, I will claim. I will claim. Big Joel fan, yeah. <laughs> but uh, we had no idea it was going to come back at the end of the movie, but it works so well in this sort of, right. you know, both it it both, you know, it shows you the aftermath, but it also lightens the mood a bit. Oh, but it cements their friendship. I yeah. mean, it's one of the very few reshoots was to you know try to figure out where all these characters were afterwards. And so, uh, if Sam were sitting vigil, what would he sit vigil to? Right. It was kind of that easy. These uh, the, the the good you brought up the reshoots because everything from the time that Steve is in the hospital right. until the, the cemetery, cemetery is a reshoot, and in a movie with this many characters that has this much scope to it, narrative scope to it, sometimes you don't know until you cut the film together what are the strands that you need to pull through, what popped, what didn't pop, what you kept in the movie, what you didn't keep in the movie, and what direction you're moving in. And again, this is part of the mosaic of working for Marvel. By this point, we had all read Avengers: Age of Ultron. We knew what the direction it was heading in, uh, you know. And it's 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 you know there's a baton handing off that goes on between these films, and I think we're able to more accurately assess how this movie should end uh, at that point. Well, really, what it was too is we just you have when you have such a seismic change in what in in the central sort of uh, story of of what's uh, of the in, in in the fact that Shield has fallen. And you know you have to take a breath and just have a uh, check in with each character right. to see what that means, just to feel, to feel it, feel the enormity of the change. We also didn't. We had the luxury of not having to fix a lot of stuff. Yeah, right. exactly. So, so that the, the money point. that's yeah. already that's that? baked in, you know, in this process was yeah. used to, you know, enhance the Sweet. last few beats here. Uh, Anthony, you want to take credit for uh, the Pulp Fiction reference? Yeah, we did. Well, look, we could. We were having trouble very late in the game just figuring out what to put on Nick Fury's gravestone because we couldn't show his the dates of his birth and death, death for various reasons. Uh, right. So we just were like, we're looking for details to help fill out um, the fact that it, that this was the a fact it was a gravestone and and uh, you know a quote that quote just popped up. We need an epitaph. For us, it's more fun to plan an Easter egg than it is to just do something standard. It, the reason you do that is so that when you watch the movie a second or third or a fourth time, there's always something for you to discover in the film that you haven't seen before. And it's, it's, a, it's a trick that we used on Arrested and Community, Arrested Development Community. It might take a while. I'm counting on it. It's a really lovely cemetery in Cleveland called Lakeview Cemetery. And a really lovely scene between these two mm -hmm. really highlights the platonic nature of the relationship, but with a real deep... I, I think there's a... It's actual love there that's, uh, that you know, that's like a, a brother and a sister. They've also a, changed right. each other. I mean, yeah, like, right. she's blown all her covers in large part because Steve has shown her that maybe you shouldn't live such a morally murky life. Right. Yeah. Uh, Pretty amazing. She's trying to push him towards, you know, Emily Van Camp. Be careful, Steve. And then, uh, you know, I think it was in uh, some of the trailers, but there's actually a line that, uh, that comes after, you know, Sam's last line in the movie. Mm. And if you stick around and watch the end credits, and at the very end of the credits, there's a sequence with Bucky and the Smithsonian, that actually used to end the movie. And then as, you know, we figure out what the end tag is going to be and what Joss is shooting for uh, to, to, as, as a teaser to Avengers... We ended up doing a, again to invoke Friedkin a very Friedkin-esque ending where you're cutting mid you know mid sentence or mid thought right. uh, in order to create anticipation for what comes next, and that was Jeff Ford's idea, the editor. These credits were done by uh, Aaron Sorofsky. She has a design firm in Chicago, and she did the uh, main title credits for Community and Happy Ending, our shows, and um, 
We've always loved her work. We like this concept of uh, throwback um, uh, credits. Yeah, they're really spooky. Really great. And again, a phenomenal score by Henry here. This is one of my favorite pieces of music. This is a, a callback of the, uh, the score um, on the bridge when Cap is taking on the jet. This is a, this gotcha. is a variation on that theme, which is Cap's theme in the movie. It's his heroism theme, and he doesn't get to use it a lot in the film because the film is about him building back towards that. Am I right in that the only part from the first movie, the Sylvester score, is just around the mall jogging? The very beginning, right. the first, like, 30 okay. seconds are right. an homage to the Sylvester score. And there was score. no thought to, I've never asked you this, there's no thought to bringing it back when he reappears in the suit, in the, in the old no, suit? No, because we, the film it's is such a departure yeah. 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 tonally and visually from that movie that you can use it to hand you off at the beginning of the film yep, clearly. before you're into a 70s thriller. But the minute you're ensconced in that, now you're in something very different. Gotcha. And the themes, we wanted the themes to come from what was working in the movie already, you know, what was in this film. And this is the uh, Avengers setup tag. Another bonus of getting to work for Marvel is if you are a fanboy, you get to sit in an edit room uh, you know, we don't. We, we didn't see any of the scene shot. We didn't see the script for it. Right. We, we, you know, we get a call one day to come in and check it out. And, <laughs> and just like everybody else in the world, we excitedly get to see, you know, what's coming next in 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 the Avengers franchise, and where Joss is headed with it. I love this. I think it's a great performance here. It's very. Uh, um, you can tell that there's going to be a much darker tone in the film. Right. Uh, you know, the 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 lighting is darker. The camera work. Uh, it's got a two, three, five frame, which I, I think is great. I love it. It's very cinematic, um, and the performances are, 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 are unsettling. It's also great. It reminds you of how much has has shaken out from you yanked down Shield and Hydra. Things go loose. You know, it's like mm -hmm. when you pull down the Soviet Union and there's nuclear weapons all over the place. This is the comic version of nuclear weapons. You know. Yeah. Super people out on the loose. Well, so that's also the old uh, sort of narrative about the Italian mafia in the United States is that it was, you know, things were more settled when they had more control, and then right. it yeah. goes away as an oversight agency in the in the black market, and all hell breaks loose. The Spiro's credit, great job on the movie. So these, this is this is the part of the movie that reminds you that it takes thousands of people to make a movie. Yes. There's many movie, many people that worked on this movie that aren't even credited. So it's.
No, there's a nice verite to the opening. It, uh, you know, uh, simplicity. It, it, a simplicity to it that um, you're not sure, quite sure what direction the movie's heading in. Well, a real guy, random moment, out jogging. Yeah. Chance encounter. Mm -hmm. Also, engaging and charming way to begin the movie. I think it's a, uh, you know, um, it elicits laughs and I think it gets people into the film. Yeah. Ohio. Uh, how did it feel to blow up your hometown? Is it satisfying? Uh, <laughs> I mean, no matter how old you get, you never get tired of blowing stuff up. <laughs> And now we're coming on. This always was at the end of the movie, whether it was before the credits or after the credits. It was always where we wanted to. It's the end of the script. Go out. Yeah. yeah. And our favorite theme in the film, Winter Soldier theme, gets reprised here. Mm. Um, that eagle noise is. Yeah. Terrifying. That's a human voice. Really? Is it? Yeah. Henry Jackman recorded human voices and distorted them as, a, as you know, them, right. trying to find a nice expression for the character. It was really brilliant. And here's your hook for Cap Three. It's all about baseball caps. Look at Sebastian there. All right. And that's your picture. Yeah. Thanks for listening. Hail Hydra, everybody. Hail Hydra. <laughs>